welcome back everybody to the last day of the DC uh, DC leadership conference and our second day of the legislative seminar. I'm Cindy Hollis, manager of membership engagement with the American Council of the Blind, and I'm coming to you from Flat Rock, Michigan. And I am here with one of my uh, best buddies in ACB. We work together all the time. And so, uh, Colby, why don't you introduce yourself? We haven't really done that. Hello, everyone. I am Colby Garrison, Membership Services Administrative Assistant for ACB, and I'm coming to you from Greensboro, North Carolina. All right. And we work together every day, of course, but uh, in the mornings, we do our ACB Presents, the daily schedule, and uh, we meet together in the community on Zoom and in Clubhouse. We join them together. Uh, we average, uh, my gosh, today 64, 64. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 64 people joined us. Uh, it was amazing. And uh, so when we do that, we ask a question of the day. We go over the daily schedule. We also have been going over the leadership conference. It's amazing. And uh, so if you are not involved in our community and would like to learn more or join our email list so you can get the daily schedule drop an email to community at acb.org and we will get you hooked up. Uh, it's just amazing. I think we have like 15 events today alone and that's not, con- uh, or 16, 16. And that is not counting today's legislative seminar. So lots for people to do. And we are just grateful for all of our volunteers and the people that take part and keep it going in the community. But to kick off today, we are going to have one of our sponsors, and uh, that is Vanda Pharmaceuticals. And Jennifer, we appreciate you being here. I I would love for you to tell us what your title is with Vanda, and just tell us a little bit about what you do and anything else. And and we're just grateful to have you here from Chicago. (laughs) Thank you so much, Cindy. I am so happy to be here. Hello, ACB leaders. Um, I want to let you know that I do have my green sweater on for St. Patrick's Day this week. Um, As as Cindy said, my name is Jennifer, and I am one of the nurse educators for Vanda, and we really appreciate our partnership with the ACB over the years. And it's always a privilege for us to be able to participate in your conference. So thanks again for having us here. Um, Absolutely. I know my, yeah, I know my colleague Vicki spoke to you on Saturday, um, and most of you are familiar with Vanda, but for those who aren't, um, or maybe you missed uh, her, little, um, her little spot, uh, Vanda is a biopharmaceutical company that offers support services and education about the rare circadian rhythm disorder called non-24-hour sleep-wake disorder. We just call it non-24 for short. Um, So I'll spend a quick minute here telling you what we do as nurse educators out in our communities. Um, We each cover specific regions in the country. I cover the midsection of the country, the Midwest, if you will. Shauna Jatho, some of you may know, she covers uh, mostly the West. Vicki Preddy, who is here on Saturday, covers the Southeast and New England states. And Maggie Felton, um, some of you probably know too, she covers the mid-Atlantic states. 
So um, what, what do we do as nurse educators? Um, our goal is to raise awareness um, about non-24 out in the community. And we educate the visually impaired and the organizations that support them, um, such, such as local support groups, manufacturers, guide dog organizations, um, and rehab facilities, just to name a few. Um, we speak uh, both at large and formal events, um, and we also speak at smaller uh, events that are in a more casual setting. Those settings um, are nice because they do afford us the opportunity to engage in more of a discussion about non-24 and um, uh, people can ask questions. So um, it's a great venue for us to be in um, as far as providing education out in the community. Um, what we talk about is the biology and the signs of non-24 to help you identify the symptoms of it, either in yourself, a loved one, or a friend. Um, and then we can connect you with additional resources if needed. Um, I'm sure many of you have attended our presentations in the past, and you learned that people with non-24 experience sleep struggles. But are you aware that people with low vision and those who are sighted can also be affected by non-24? That's one of the things that people learn at a presentation, but may, maybe they forgot it. Uh, maybe they didn't hear it. Um, so we really take you through top to bottom. Um, what those signs and symptoms are and, and how it can impact your life. So if you would like a refresher on non-24, uh, please reach out to us. Uh, the last couple of years have been really tough for everyone, and we hope you'll invite us to join you at one of your upcoming meetings, support groups, or events, because we're all really looking forward to meeting you this year. So thank you so much for this opportunity to say hello, and I hope you all enjoy the rest of the conference. So, Jennifer, have you ever been to one of our conferences uh, in person? No. I, I well, you guys, last year, but just, you know, via Zoom. I'm going to just tell you, Vanda has one of the best booths at our conference. And <laughs> do you have any idea of why it is so popular? Um, I have a sneaking suspicion, but I'll let you share. <laughs> well, I want to know, Colby, do you know? No, I don't. Oh, Colby. Oh, honey. So, when you go... <laughs> <laughs> when you go to exhibits, Vanda is usually at an end. Okay. And somewhere in the later part of the morning, usually around somewhere near noon ish, I, I believe anyway, <sighs> they bring out the ice cream bars. They are like the ice cream oh. truck. And they have this big freezer Ooh. with all these different ice cream bars there. And <laughs> it is amazing. And yeah, and they are an equal opportunity sharer. So yeah, good times uh, for everyone. Seriously, it's yes, it's like the ice cream truck, but even better. And uh, we appreciate that so much. So hoping that um, Vanda will be with us in person and that they won't stop that tradition because some of us are really looking forward <laughs> to it. <laughs> Uh, it's noted, Cindy. It's noted. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we also would love, again, to extend an invitation to Vanda to be part of our community. So please make sure if uh, you or Vicki or I think it was Heather, uh, was it Heather? I, I think, anyway, uh, uh, 
reaches out to us and um, lets us know if you want information about how to do that because we'd yeah, love to I, have you. I absolutely will, Cindy. It sounds amazing. Yes. All right. Thank you so much, Jennifer. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Enjoy. All right. And the lady yes, of the Swatha. hour, Swatha, is here. Yay. So, Swatha, I know you are probably pretty darned busy, but uh, we would love to take opportunity to hear from you just uh, as this is your first legislative seminar. And here you are, uh, I'm sure, just going crazy. So much going on with uh, not only the seminar, but also with the all Spanish speaking uh, wrap up show at the end of the days. And uh, so how are you doing? How are you holding up? <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm having a blast, Justin, honestly. I'm having, having a lot of fun here. Good, good. Uh, so Swatha, first, let's, I want you to say your name and including your last name and your title with ACB. Yeah, so I am Swatha Nanda Kumar. I am the advocacy and outreach specialist here at ACB. And we are so glad to have you. And you've been here not quite a year, right? A little over a year. Okay, so you started in March? Yep. All right. March 1st. Yeah. So I knew you missed the... the um, did you miss the conference last year? Or were you part? Of, you had just come on, right? Yeah, and yep. Eric yep. Clark wanted me to do just to just to observe, so there for a bit. Yep. So All right, so but you're not just observing this time, right? <laughs> yeah, no, and and that's yeah. hosting it. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so tell us what is your if you could name one thing you're really looking forward to today, what might it be? I'm really looking forward to the legal advocacy panel with Matt Hanley and um, other 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 legal legal partners. So, all right, is that is that going to be a, a general session or is that a breakout? It'll be at two fifteen today, so it's part of oh, a, a general, general session. Yeah, beautiful. All right, awesome. And are you taking part on any panels? Not today. No, um, Clark is hosting a panel on. Um, Intersection, the intersection of accessibility, privacy, and security. So obviously, that is a, well, a listener. So, all right, wonderful. And Swatha, tell us a little bit about you. I'm just curious. Um, when you're not working, what is something you just love to do? I love to read. I love, I love books and fiction. So fantasy is my favorite kind of genre. But like, I'm open to anything. So awesome. Do you have any pets? No, not like I went. I went back back home in Chicago with my parents, but not here in Alexandria. So, aha, uh-huh, see. And and were you born and raised in Chicago? I was born in India, but I was like I grew up in this in the U.S. So I grew up in. I first came to Houston at two, and then um, at five, moved to Chicago. So wonderful. My dad was from the Chicago area. He was born in Chicago. Oh, cool. Where did, yeah. where, where he, where he grew he... up in Cicero. Okay, yeah, not far so, from where I was. Okay. Okay. Nipple, 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 so. But he moved to California when he was, I think, 14. So, oh, cool. but, uh, yeah. So I still have family, though, in the Chicago area. But, and you are definitely one of the people I cannot wait to meet. <laughs> yeah. we, we hope you're yes. a hugger. 
Yes. Are, are you a hugger? I love hugs. Yeah. I love oh, them. thank Yay! goodness. Yeah. This, this is kind of the question Colby and I have, like every, every time we meet or talk to people, it's like, now that we know, you know, we'll be in Omaha, we're going to be meeting up with people. It's like, we, we have to know if you're a hugger or not. Hugger, Okay, because yeah. we Yay. are both big very time important. huggers. Very important. <laughs> it is very yes. important. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Um, Colby, do you have any questions that you could think of you'd like to ask Swatha? Trying to think. Um, I'm gonna, I'll go off the beaten path here do a it. little bit. Uh, Swatha, what is your, what's one of your favorite foods? Favorite foods? Um, it kind of varies, but I love lasagna oh. or ice cream, so. Ice cream. And we were just talking about that with Vanda. So when you go to convention, make sure you go to the Vanda uh, exhibit uh, because they always offer ice cream oh, every yeah. day. It's crazy. <laughs> it's just crazy. Seriously. Um, all right. And if if you do lasagna, do you do you like sausage? Do you like um, hamburger meat lasagna. or do you... spinach. spinach? Spinach. Okay. Yeah. Are you a vegetarian? Ooh. No, I'm not a no. Train, but I only no. do a lot of meat. So okay, so but spinach lasagna—that sounds really good. It does sound yummy. Yeah, yeah, I would like it. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Swath. I know you have a lot to do. You're welcome to hang out with us, but if you need to jump off, that's understandable as well. And we just appreciate you being with ACB. Love having you as a coworker, and um, and just. Uh, I know this will, will be a great day, so uh, enjoy it, and uh, thumbs up. Oh, you know what? Before you take off, tell us about the Spanish-speaking uh, event at the end of the day and how that's been going. Yeah. Yeah, so Gabe, Lopez Cafati <laughs> and I, um, we, we, go over the, we go, over, go over the day's event in Spanish, so just like a, wrap, a re- recap of what just happened. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they're going really well, I think. Um, I'm really joined them and really just like, it's great to it's, it's great to be able to use the skill that you like developed for over over time. So, absolutely. I mean, if you you know if you don't get to use it, it's kind of like a waste, right? So, yeah, that's awesome. I love it. And we are just delving into providing Spanish content, and really excited about it. I'm I'm glad we're kind of like gently moving in with our toes and. Pretty soon we'll, you know, we'll be all in, right? Uh, but it all takes time. So uh, just really excited about that. Thank you, Swatha, for you. Um, being willing to do it. All right. Have a great day. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You guys have fun. All right. Adios. all right and before we move to our next guest i think we should put a shout out for the mms program and for uh the mini mall so do you have those available colby that you can do let's do it all right so if you want to find anything out about the mini mall um you can Call them if you have any questions. The phone number is 877-969-6255 or 969-MALL. You can also send an email to mall at acb.org and ask any questions that way as well. And how about the MMS program, the monthly monetary support? Um, you know, you if you want to give a, a minimum of $10 a month, it can be shared with ACB and an affiliate of your choice. Uh, or if you want to up your already giving 
by $5, then you'll be put in a drawing and uh, they drew for yesterday already, but there's a $100 gift card to Amazon to be given away today. And anybody that hasn't already won could win that today if they up their giving by $5 or if they uh, sign up for the first time. Uh, So uh, how do they do that, Colby? It's really easy. So you can email askacbmms at gmail.com or you can call 888-999-3190. And if you don't get someone live, you can leave a message and Jean will more than likely call you back or someone on her team and get you squared away. And that is, again, Ask ACBMMS. So they're all one word, no, no dots or anything. And it doesn't matter if it's uh, capitalized or not. So uh, just ASKACBMMS at gmail.com and uh, let them know you want to either up your giving or give for the first time. And then uh, the Minneapolis office will take care of it for you. And They will take out your gift each month. So it's a great way to be able to contribute uh, to ACB financially and not have to do it all at once. So I know that I could not afford to give the kind of gift I would like um, at one time, but when I do it monthly, I can, and it feels really good to know I am. So, uh, you know, encourage you to do that. Other ways that you can give are certainly through participating in the walk, uh, the Braille Forum raffle, and also one of the funnest things in my book, the auction, the, the auction, the auction, the auction, which is now going to be supporting, benefiting our community and membership services. And we just appreciate that so much. Leslie Spoon you are the queen of the auction, the queen of getting donations. Uh, you are definitely a queen in my mind. I love you. And I'm anxious to hear what you have to say about this year's auction. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Cole. <laughs> going? Hi, Last day. You guys have done a phenomenal job. Oh, my oh, God. It's been fun. Thank you guys, you. you guys rock. I tell you, you guys are queens in my book. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking forward to some hugs from Colby and Cindy. You know? yes. yes, it's going to happen. Yeah. Oh, it's going to happen. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's talk about the auction. We love the auction. Cindy's been an auctioneer. Mm-hmm. And we got to get Colby on the team now, maybe. To- yeah. I, I yeah. can talk Something. fast. I'm, I'm ready. I know you can. I you. <laughs> so yay. So this year's auction will kick off the, the convention. Um, it will be virtual again. It'll be June 18th, which is a Saturday night. That's a new one for us. So we're going to do it Saturday. So you don't have to look at your bank account until the next week, you know, and, and say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and say oh how grateful i am i contributed to acb and i've got these wonderful things coming and i'm excited and happy uh, right i'm very happy i'm so yes. excited as dan says show your love for acb that's right that's yeah. right <laughs> and there will be an appetizer auction on thursday june 16th and friday june 17th to wet your whistle before the main event <laughs> 
nice. All right. So that's really exciting. I tell you, so much fun here in the Spoon household with those items. We have two days full of those appetizers. Um, you know that our committee had come up with this idea, and it's it's been such a great idea because. People can take advantage of it, and there's good things on the appetizers. You there know, are, yeah, we for sure. the list up and, and put some on the appetizers, and you get to email and phone us and talk to us, and I just love talking to everybody, so that's fun for me. So. so this is, you know, we've been to conventions for many years in person. We've done the live auction in person, um, and but the last two years, we definitely made lemonade out of lemons, right? And we right. did very successful live auctions over Zoom. And it, and what we found was that we weren't limiting ourselves to just those in the hotel or conference hall at convention. And anybody could join in. So I am really excited that the auction committee made the decision to to do this live, but via Zoom and do it all virtually because it opens up to uh, more opportunities for more people to give and more wallets. We get to touch more wallets. That's right. That's yes, exciting. That's right. <laughs> yes, it's very exciting. You know, and like you're saying, Cindy, it just, it opens it up to people that may not be coming to convention yeah. and want to participate either their time, treasure, or talent, you know. Um, yep. Because even if they're there at convention, they they may feel that they can't give an item if they can't, you know, bid or, you know, and, and that's wonderful. Whatever you can do, if you can't, if you don't want to bid and that's fine and just listen, that's great. You know, we love it. But, you know, if in this way, you're virtually and you can you can call up your friends and say, hey, are you bidding? You know, and, and people love listening. It's on ACB Media as well, so people can listen into the auction, and, and people could even create, uh, you know, do three-way calling and listen together. They could do Clubhouse if they wanted and listen. Um, last year, there was a group that that did that. They had it playing, and people were listening on their own and and just and chit chatting. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, whatever people want to do, if they, and and then some people would like leave and come back after they bid on something they really wanted and it's just really fun to <laughs> listen fun. to people get into it right it um i would be remiss if i don't tell about the deadlines so yes i was gonna i was just gonna say that give us the, yes. all the dates we need to know i will give you the dates yes so the dates for deadlines is may 1st 2022 if you send me descriptions and we're already already getting items i'm so excited i've been writing down items all week. There will be pictures for the unique items, the jewelry and the crafts. So, you know, for the low vision community, you'll be able to see pictures also on um, the Zoom, on the ACB media and the Zoom. So that's really nice. But May 1st is the deadline for descriptions. Now, if you're saying, oh my gosh, I missed the deadline. Don't worry. You can still call me. <laughs> it won't be the main auction on Saturday night, but it will get in the appetizer. And that's just as important. So if you say, oh my gosh, in June, I've forgotten and I really want to give something, please give me a call or email me and let me know because I never turn anything down. <laughs> and, and sometimes some things might be paired with other things because, you know, there's only so much time. Um, right. yeah. but, but please know that it doesn't matter the size of your gift uh, to the auction. It's appreciated. It can be gift cards. Uh, it can be your own skill 
uh, talent. Uh, it could be baked items. It could be purchased items or it could be handmade items. So yeah. Um, and the no, community, the community, I just have to thank you and Colby. The community has really stepped up in the last couple of years. Oh my goodness. Belinda and Jamaica and other people. I don't want to miss anybody. So I won't start naming names, but you know, it's been so awesome. And we already have Belinda's um, technology again on the list. All right. Oh, that was, that really went last year. And Colby and I are both thinking about what we are going to donate. And my goal is to have something to you today. Uh, So, uh, and (laughs) yeah, and it might, it might include time with me as well as something baked by me. So that's going to go phenomenal. (laughs) I hope so. That's (laughs) the idea, right? Yes. So just, too much fun, uh, really, uh, around uh, the auction. And the auction itself is going to be held when? The auction itself will be June 18th, Saturday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, which will be 6 o'clock Central, uh, 4 o'clock Pacific. And I don't know Hawaiian time. so It'll be 1, 1 o'clock p.m. Hawaiian. Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty bad with time. so it's good That's okay. It just changed. It just changed <laughs> yeah, uh, this week. Changed. So. It would have been yes. two, but it's now one. Yeah. And then the appetizers are Thursday and Friday. They'll start at noon Eastern and they'll go to the following day. So Thursday will close noon Eastern on Friday. Friday will start noon Eastern and close Saturday noon Eastern. And then the main event, Saturday night. And and tell us how the appetizer auction will work. I'm as sorry. far as like, how will the appetizer auction work as far as getting word out about the items and the you know bidding and oh, the timeline. I'm so glad you yeah. asked this. This is new this year, and I forgot to mention this. So this year, Mary Hop from um, Louisiana. Louisiana. Yes, yes, Louisiana. Um, she's on the committee. Wonderful edition, and she is going to read all of the items on Media Ten this year. Oh, wow. wonderful! So, yeah, because you know we found out this was what we learned in our lessons learned after this year's auctions. Uh, some people don't have computer and they don't have um, friends that can help them find the items or anything. So we said to Mary, she loves to read. So I said, Mary, you've got a job this year, baby. (laughs) 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 She's reading on media 10, all of the descriptions. So appetizers auction. Oh, wonderful. And then of course you will help us, Cindy and Colby. Oh yeah on on the community it'll be part of the blurb that we put at the end of each email for thursday and friday right Uh, but then people have to check in if they're really wanting to bid on something right they're gonna have to check with you because they have to call me and email me and do it all they might even get dan (laughs) <laughs> they might even get dan who at that time is not the president he is right yeah he's, he's the auctioneer coordinator yeah he's an auction helper i love it that's right he's the assistant auctioneer person <laughs> <laughs> and do do we know who our auctioneers are going to be this year we're hoping for the same auctioneer so it'd be cindy hollis Dan Spoon, Michael Garrett, and Jeff Tom. So we're hoping. All right. That'll be. And we'll, we'll reach out to the describers. So a little early, but we're hoping. I wonder, you know, maybe, maybe uh, we could talk to Colby about being my yeah. describer. That's what I'm thinking. Oh. I'm thinking. I'm <laughs> yes. thinking. 
thinking so. I wonder what she would say. Yeah. <laughs> I would say yes. Oh, well, there you oh, We there might you have go. our team for yes. me and her. Yeah. All right. All right. No, that'd be great. Yes. So, all right. Any well, any final tuned. any final yes. words, Leslie? Just just this auction so near and dear to my heart. Cindy, it started with you as a dream and a vision with you and Brenda and Jeff, Tom, Brenda Dillon, and you. I just can't thank you enough for having the confidence in me to have, you know, our friendship. And it's just so humbling. I love this auction. It's it's now going to benefit the community and membership engagement. It's amazing. Grace yes. in this community. So I'm yeah. just so, so thrilled. So Thanks for all you guys do all year long and you guys rock. Happy early second birthday. Yes, this Thursday. Don't forget, bid, bid, bid. Bid, bid, bid. And Leslie, um, the auction is the reason you and I even met, you know, really, because we ended up, yep. So uh, anyway, I appreciate you. Thanks so much. Appreciate you guys. Great job. Thank Thank you. you. So, Colby, let's let people know how they can receive our daily schedule for community events. Uh, sure. Yeah. So, if you want to hear and get in on all of the amazingness that is ACB community, it's really simple. All you have to do is send an email to community at acb.org. Let us know you'd like to be subscribed to receive our daily schedule. And if you don't have access to email and know people who don't have access to email, you can still participate in all of our events and you can still read the schedule via our phone system or listen to the schedule. And you can call one 800 424 8666 and follow the prompts. I record the schedule every week All and right. you can listen. Yeah. And we hope you'll join us. And now though, we're going to turn it over to general sessions. Enjoy your day. We'll be back. Thank you and welcome everyone to the final day of the 2022 ACB Leadership Conference in day two of our legislative seminar. I am Clark Rockfall, ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs. Thank you to everyone who's joining us on Zoom, those who are listening over the ACB Media Network as well as those who are participating on YouTube, Facebook, and by joining us streaming at acb.org slash live. Just a, a quick couple items here before I turn it over to my colleague, Swathananda Kumar. Uh, first, thank you to our sponsors for the Leadership Conference. So at the presidential level, we have J.P. Morgan Chase, at the congressional level, Vanda Pharmaceuticals, and the Beltway level, Vispero. Uh, we couldn't do this without our sponsors. And a, also a special thank you to the Perkins School for the Blind and your, your support and allowing us to house our broadcast control center on the Perkins campus. Uh, that goes a long way to making all of this possible. Uh, another thing that goes a long way to making the work that we do here at ACB possible 
is the ACB Monthly Monetary Support Program. So today is the, the final day to be entered into the raffle drawing of $100 for everyone who signed, excuse me, <laughs> everyone who signs up new or increases their MMS contribution will be eligible for the $100 drawing. And you can do that by calling 888-9999-3190. I'll do that again. 888-9999-3190. And folks have probably seen the emails from Gene Mann over the leadership lists and elsewhere promoting the monthly monetary support program as well. You can also email askacbmms for monthly monetary support. So askacbmms at gmail.com. This is a great way to, to make small contributions to ACB each month that add up and have a large impact to allow us to carry on our advocacy work, our membership and support efforts that make the ACB family and community uh, worthwhile for everyone. So without further ado, uh, Swatha Nandakumar, good morning and take it away. Good morning, Clark, thank you. Um, yeah, so I am Swatha Ananda Kumar. I am the advocacy and outreach specialist here at ACB. And um, yeah, so good to go over the days. Um, welcome to day two of the Con- Legislative Seminar, our event. Um, yeah, so we have lots of inv- exciting guest speakers and panels and breakouts. So, the, so just to go over, um, First up, we have, we've got Allison Barkoff from the Administration on Community Living, um, talking about COVID, COVID accessibility, and um, and we have a panel from Kim Charleston and WBU members, um, World World of Blind Union members, um, talking about talking further about the of the pandemic and um, other um, sites and tools in that in that regard. Um, then we have a panel hosted by Clark and myself um, talking with um, Matt Hanley, Christina Brandt Young, and Maggie Hart from who are our um, legal partners in uh, talking about legal legal ethics landscape. Then we've got three breakouts and Clark's hosting one one of them, right Clark? I am. So I'm excited to be hosting a panel. And also, Swatha, I thought you were going to call the uh, the legal panel our uh, legal partners in crime. (laughs) But uh, I'm hosting a panel with several of our partners from the technology community on the intersection of accessibility, security, privacy, and safety. Um, So I'm happy to have Ira, Democracy Live, and Meta joining me for that conversation. And Swatha, we've got a couple other breakouts today as well. Yes, we do. We have um, have one um, 
talking about Teddy Joyce Law and older individual individuals who are dealing with vision loss. And we also had another one on um, patient advocacy in health in healthcare with um, some members of our get up get up and get get up get up and get moving campaign. Um, and lastly, we have a, a solution session with Charles Cooper, one of our advisory advisory board members, talking about the political talking about the political landscape and outlook for 2022 and beyond. So. Yeah, that's our day. And we also have the Spanish Rabbit at 6 o'clock, which is hosted by me and Gabe. So join us for that too. And a, a big thank you, Swatha, to you and Gabriel Lopez Cafati for the, the work you've been doing with the, the Spanish translation as well as the Spanish language wrap up show. Uh, and Swatha, because this is our legislative seminar and following today's events, our affiliates are working hard to schedule meetings with their members of Congress and staff uh, to talk with them about our four legislative imperatives. You just want to give folks a quick reminder on those four legislative items? Yeah, definitely. Um, so those imperatives are the exercise and fitness for all and fitness for all act. Plus, you also got the Medical Device and Visual Accessibility Act, the Website and Application Accessibility Act, and the Communications and Video Accessibility Amendments Act, CVAAA. And um, as a reminder, to fill out the Hill, the Hill, visit, Hill visit Feedback 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 Form, which was sent out to all registered attendees, yesterday um, afternoon. So we have a survey online and we also have a document, which, which only, only, only need to do one of, one, of, one of those. So, and only do one for, one for, for visit, so. Yes, only do one for per visit, but please fill out the survey uh, and share your experience and the impression that you received from those visits with us in the national office so that we may work with your affiliates to follow up, um, build relationships with those staff members and with those members of Congress so that we can, again, build relationships and build support for these four legislative imperatives. Mm -hmm. So at this time, I'd like to introduce our first speaker, uh, as Swatha said, we are fortunate to be joined by Allison Barkoff. Uh, several of us who've been a part of ACB and, and worked uh, especially on staff at ACB and here in the, the Washington area with the Consortium of Constituents with Disabilities. Uh, Allison is no stranger to us, but Allison is in a, a new role. And Allison Barkoff is the acting administrator and Assistant Secretary for Aging at the Administration for Community Living, which is part of the U.S. Department for Health and Human Services, or HHS. So, Allison, welcome to the ACB Leadership Conference and Legislative Seminar. Great. Thank you, Clark, so much for the introduction. And let me just start by giving a brief visual description. Um, I'm a middle-aged white woman with curly brown hair, um, white skin, wearing a blazer and a, um, a watercolor-ish blouse with 
um, logos behind me of HHS and ACL. And I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with all of you today to share a little bit about ACL's mission and priorities and to really acknowledge all of y'all's incredible efforts uh, and advocacy. For those of you I haven't had the chance to meet before, let me start by sharing a little bit about my background. As Clark mentioned, uh, I've been privileged to join the Administration for Community Living, and I joined on Inauguration Day as the Principal Deputy Administrator, and I am currently serving as ACL's Acting Administrator and Assistant Secretary for Aging. At ACL, we believe that everyone has the right to live and fully participate in their communities, regardless of age or disability. And our disability programs and policy advocacy are focused on maximizing independence, well-being, and the health of all people with disabilities. The mission of ACL, supporting opportunities for community living for all, has been my own life's mission. I've been involved in disability rights and advocacy around community living for my entire life. And I have had the experience advocating alongside people with disabilities, families and advocates from across the country. And it's really shown me the importance of coming together to implement positive changes and working in coalition. I've worked on policy change at the national and state levels, and my work has always centered on the principle that community living is a civil right and it's possible for everyone, regardless of type of disability, level of support needed, or age. And I truly believe we are making progress together in many of our shared goals. And at the same time, we have a lot of work to do together to ensure full and equal access to all aspects of community life from schools to workplaces to healthcare to transportation and all of our other public spaces. Before I touch on ACL's work related to blindness and low vision, I really wanna start by thanking each of you. Thank you for the incredible work and advocacy that you do each day. As Clark mentioned, before joining ACL, I had the chance to work with ACB on a number of issues. And since joining ACL, I've seen your incredible advocacy, particularly related to the pandemic. I know I don't need to tell you the ways that people with disabilities have been so impacted from facing higher risks of COVID to losing services or losing jobs to facing social isolation. And so many of you have worked so hard to make sure everyone has stayed as safe as possible and creatively work to help meet people's most pressing needs. At ACL, I truly feel like we have been in this battle together uh, with the entire disability community. And again, for everything we've done, thank you. COVID-19 continues to be the priority for ACL and the administration. In order to do our job at ACL, and we really are in a unique role serving as the advocacy voice within the federal government, we must engage with stakeholders. And we've really appreciated, and it's been critical to hear from so many people across the disability throughout the pandemic. Hearing from you directly about what is and isn't working and getting your input on what is needed and what solutions are possible. 
At ACL, we take the community's input and it's really informed the work that we've done across the federal government, working with the White House, the HHS COVID task force, the equity task force, the CDC, and so many other federal agencies to ensure that the unique needs of people with disabilities are always considered. From the moment I arrived at ACL, at the time when vaccines were just beginning to be rolled out, we have been focused on addressing barriers. Our goal is that every single person with a disability who is willing to get vaccinated and now boosted can do so. In March of last year, we launched a first-of-its-kind partnership with the CDC, where they provided us $100 million to improve vaccine access for people with disabilities. That funding has helped our disability and aging networks that are on the ground in local communities across the country to provide direct assistance to people in accessing vaccines. And that's included everything from helping people to register for vaccines and boosters to identifying accessible vaccine sites, to providing transportation and in-person supports during vaccinations, to providing in-home vaccinations when those are needed. We also used a part of that funding to launch the first national hotline to assist people in connecting with local services called the Disability Information and Access Line, or DIAL. This hotline can provide assistance and connect callers with local resources on a range of COVID and non-COVID issues. Everything from helping people connect with those on the ground supports to getting vaccines and boosters, to helping connect people with community services, to addressing housing, nutrition, and other emergency needs. We've assisted more than 30,000 people with disabilities through DIAL since the launch last year. And this is another place where we are very interested in community feedback about how DIAL can best meet the needs of our diverse disability community, including, of course, people who are blind or have low vision. Ensuring equal access to vaccine programs is not just the right policy, it's the law. And that's why last year, ACL collaborated with HHS's Office for Civil Rights, or OCR. OCR issued a guidance document describing the legal obligations of public ent entities to make vaccine programs accessible to people with disabilities. And ACL issued a companion best practices document highlighting how our networks were partnering with public health systems to ensure access. These documents include a focus on legal requirements and strategies, um, focused on accessibility of vaccine websites, accessibility of information provided to patients, and the actual accessibility of vaccine, website, uh, vaccine sites. And our work at HHS has complemented enforcement work by the Department of Justice including some of their more recent work to address inaccessible vaccine websites. I wanna turn now to talk about um, COVID tests and masks. When the administration recently announced its program to distribute at-home COVID tests and then shortly afterwards masks, ACL worked to identify ways that we could help address barriers that people with disabilities might face in accessing these programs. Since the launch of the testing program in January, DIAL has been a resource to assist with ordering tests, 
providing instructions in alternative formats, and helping people understand how to administer and read the results of tests. Last month, we expanded the ways that Dial can assist people who face barriers in using in-home tests. Dial can now assist people with getting alternative swab and send tests where the test is mailed in and the lab provides the results to individuals. For people who cannot use in-home tests, Dial can connect callers with local resources for in-home testing programs or transportation and companion support at a community-based testing site. We recognize that these options may not fully meet everyone's needs. And that's why in addition to the work that ACL is doing, other components of HHS, including the National Institutes of Health and the Food and Drug Administration are working quickly to develop more accessible at-home COVID tests. ACL has also recently launched a partnership with the Health Services and Resource Administration, or HRSA, to get in-home tests and masks to people who face barriers in leaving their homes. Through this partnership, our disability and aging networks can order tests and masks through HRSA's community health centers and rural clinics. I want to briefly touch on an issue that I know has been an area of advocacy for ACB, telehealth. During the pandemic, telehealth has greatly expanded, and certainly for some people, it has made healthcare easier to access. But we have also heard from stakeholders about the barriers that some people with disabilities face in using telehealth due to inaccessible platforms or websites, again, including from people who are blind or have low vision. We've been working with colleagues across HHS, including the Office for Civil Rights, and HRSA to improve the accessibility of telehealth services for everyone with a disability. And again, we'd really appreciate the opportunity to continue to work with you on this important issue. In addition to all the work that ACL is doing directly, ACL's disability and aging networks, which are in every state and in local communities across the country, have been providing crucial assistance throughout the pandemic. Although in ACL, we do not have any programs that we implement that are specifically targeted to people who are blind or have low vision, a number of our cross-disability programs do include a focus on providing supports for and addressing barriers faced by people who are blind or have low vision. For example, ACL funds protection and advocacy agencies, or PNAs, in every state to provide legal advocacy and protect the civil rights of people with disabilities. Examples of works that PNAs have done throughout the pandemic on behalf of hundreds of clients who are blind or have low vision include addressing inaccessible vaccine and booster websites, advocating on behalf of students who were denied a free and appropriate education during the pandemic, and addressing barriers to voting. Again, all on behalf of clients who are blind or have low vision. ACL also funds assistive technology programs in every state and territory. And, I wanna, and I'd like to highlight one of the programs in Georgia called Tools for Life, who has worked closely with the CDC to improve accessibility of COVID-19 public health materials. Tool for Life produced accessible public health materials that included ASL videos, documents with minimal text complexity, and Braille materials. 
they ensured that the materials and CDC websites met or exceeded Section 504 and other standards and were usable with a variety of assistive technology devices. ACL helped spread the word about this effort and worked to ensure that other state AT programs were aware of this effort. And other AT programs have worked throughout the pandemic to ensure continuity of services to people who are blind or have low vision. For example, AT in New Hampshire worked with New Hampshire Services for the Blind and Vision Impaired to put on a series of workshops focused on accessibility. We also provide grants to universities that support people who are blind through 13 of our grants to university centers on excellence in developmental disabilities. ACL also funds Centers for Independent Living, or SILS, which provide independent living services to people with disabilities. These services can include everything from connecting a person with needed community services or housing to assisting with finding a job or learning how to advocate. One example of some work that SILs have done on behalf of your community include the SIL in Lake, the Lake County SIL in Illinois. And I just want to share this story, which exemplifies what we hope our SILs can be doing on behalf of blind and low vision consumers. Um, on behalf of a consumer who was legally blind and also had a physical disability, they provided needed orientation and mobility training. They arranged for several meetings with an orientation and mobility instructor and really assisted this consumer in being able to live independently. In Washington, D.C., where the D.C. Center for Independent Living um, engages in work, I want to highlight some work they did to provide Chromebooks to low-income, blind, and low-vision residents. The DC Cell also established peer groups, such as the Blind and Visually Impaired Men's Group, the Blind and Visually Impaired Women's Group, and a youth group. And the DC Cell is very active in providing JAWS, Braille, and smartphone training to consumers with low vision. From our engagement with stakeholders and throughout discussions with the ACL team, it's clear that some SILs, like the ones I just highlighted, are doing a good job working with consumers who are blind or have low vision. And to be honest, some are not yet excelling. And this is one area where we'd really welcome your input and feedback about how we can support SILs to better serve your community's needs. ACL also has a center focused on disability research. Our National Institute on Disability Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research, or NIDLR. And I wanna to touch on a couple projects that NIDLR uh, funds for people who are blind or low vision. NIDLR funded the Smith Kettlewell Eye Research Institute in San Francisco to create an accessibility-first website that makes pandemic data sourced by Johns Hopkins University accessible to people with visual impairment. They also funded the efforts of the Center on Employment of People Who Are Blind or Have Low Vision at Mississippi State, which has really worked to advance employment opportunities, including throughout the pandemic. Neidler is a primary financial supporter of the National Research Center for Parents with Disabilities at Brandeis, of which ACB is a national dissemination partner. And this center focuses on the parenting experiences among people with a broad range of disabilities, including blindness. 
And as I speak, Nidler has an open funding opportunity right now for a new rehabilitation engineering research center on blindness and low vision. If you're interested in this opportunity, please feel free to visit acl.gov and visit the announcements page. I know I've just gone through a really long area of a list of areas where ACL is actively engaged or where we are funding efforts to ensure the rights of people who are blind or have low vision. And of course, this list doesn't include everything. Um, I do wanna just mention, um, even though I am focused today in my comments on COVID, that I haven't even touched on the many non-COVID areas where I hope we can collaborate with all of you, including in particular our shared interests around disability employment. I wanna close by thanking all of you again for your incredible advocacy and for helping ACL know what issues you are facing in your communities. Your collective voice is making a difference. And though progress is never as rapid as all of us would wish, we are making progress together. We can continue to make a difference for the millions of people who are blind and have low vision. If you wanna reach out to us, please visit acl.gov. I'd encourage you to sign up for our alerts and to follow us on social media. We really try to get information out um, to our community, things that are happening across the federal government that are of issue um, and interest. We know that community engagement is crucial to the work that we do. And I really wanna invite Clark and Swatha and others to please reach out to us. We really want to hear from you and hear from the community. We're a small agency, but we truly try to leverage the resources we have and think outside the box for solutions. And we work together with our disability and aging networks across the country to try to meet the most pressing needs on behalf of our community. Again, thank you for having me here. Thank you for listening. And as always, thank you for your advocacy and partnership. And with that, I will turn it back to you. Um, Allison Barkoff, uh, Acting Administrator and Assistant Secretary on Aging at ACL within uh, HHS. Thank you so much for your comments here today. Uh, and, and folks who are viewing, um, know that uh, Allison is unfortunately unable to stay for audience questions, uh, but ACB staff is always willing to help folks connect uh, with ACL and HHS, uh, much like we've done with some of our resolutions, especially focused on vision loss and home and community-based services. Um, so again, thank you for that overview. Swatha, what stood out to you from Allison's remarks? So that to me was the work doing with the work they're doing with um dial the disability access line. I've heard like I'm not as familiar with that, but I've heard but like I attended a couple of briefings about it, and um now it was great to hear about how they're using it to make vaccines or COVID information more accessible. How are you, Clark? Yeah, and then accessibility throughout the pandemic, as, as we all know, it's much like accessibility everywhere else. It's been a journey, right? Uh, whether that's information made available from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, uh, to having accessible uh, COVID-19 vaccination websites, um, and now what's, what's going on with, uh, with testing. 
Uh, another thing that stood out to me is this uh, this grant opportunity um, for a uh, re- rehabilitation uh, engineering research center focused on accessibility. So I know that's something that many of our partner organizations, who knows, maybe even some ACB affiliates might be interested in, but certainly some valuable information that we'll, we'll share the link to um, so that our folks can help get this to your community providers to see if it's a, a right fit and a, a good opportunity to increase accessibility and the available research and engineering services out there. All right. And at this point, following on the, the remarks from uh, Allison Barkoff, I'd like to introduce ACB's immediate past president, Kim Charlson, uh, for her panel conversation related to the accessibility of COVID testing. Welcome, Kim. Thank you, Clark, very much. Um, I thank you to Allison for her great remarks. Um, And today we're going to spend the remaining portion of this panel talking about um, COVID accessibility, specifically around the issue of accessibility to home-based rapid antigen COVID tests or self-tests. This became an issue, certainly um, it's not a new issue, and we're going to learn some really interesting facts as we talk about it a bit from an international perspective um, from our colleagues um, in England and also some advocacy work in Canada. So um, I'm really pleased to have um, Clark as part of the panel to talk about a little bit on background related to what ACB has been doing in the the area of accessibility to COVID tests. And it was great to hear from Allison because a lot of the focus on access to home tests, um, we we haven't had COVID home-based tests for all that long. But um, as you may recall, the the government in quite an aggressive um, campaign was making free tests available for for home testing for COVID. And that's kind of where our ACB initiatives really took off. And um, so Clark will be giving a little background on that. I'm excited to hear from two colleagues from the Royal National Institute for Blind People, Martin Wingfield, who is the head of brand at RNIB, and Michael Wordingham, who Wordingham, yes, who is the policy and campaigns officer for RNIB. And then we'll wrap up hearing from our um, our Canadian Neighbors Advocacy Organization's president, Marsha Yale, and she's the president of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. So, Clark, I'm going to hand it back to you to give a little bit of background on how and what has transpired over the last eight to 10 weeks, I would say. It's been a a fairly short time period, but I would say a lot of progress has been made by ACB and our partner organizations working out there with us to to get some focus on the issue of accessibility of home-based tests. 
Yes, and thank you, Kim. Hello, everyone. This is Clark again. It has been a brief period of time, but it has been a very important time and a time of utmost urgency. So back in January, ACB, uh, once the administration began rolling out the uh, COVID at-home testing program, where everyone could go online or place a phone call in order uh, for at-home COVID tests. And now we're in the midst of uh, a second wave of that program, if you will, uh, where folks can order in, uh, for additional tests. Uh, however, uh, it was quickly noted and realized that none of these tests currently on the market are accessible to ACB members who are blind and low vision. So President Dan Spoon sent a letter to the, uh, to the White House, to the administration, to the Director of Disability Policy uh, toward on January 21st. We followed that up with a, a letter to the National Institutes for Health, as Allison is saying, that NIH has been tasked with researching uh, COVID testing accessibility. So since that time, we've had uh, some ongoing uh, dialogues and communications, and I'll let Kim talk about what opportunities lie ahead. But in the meantime, um, Kim, I, I just have to note, I received my free COVID tests in the mail in this nice, you know, little, small little box, uh, nothing in the way of accessible labeling on it. I've opened it up. There are directions inside of it. And these directions are not accessible uh, to me either. Not large print, not braille. I'm not sure what to do with the instructions for completing the test. I'm not sure of the expiration date of when the test expires. And certainly uh, cannot independently, without cited assistance, whether virtual or in person, read the results of this test once completed. So true. Absolutely. I got the same package um, of, of home-based home tests, and it is um, truly not accessible to us without cited intervention of some kind. And so, um, you know, there are certainly programs out there to help, um, and I commend and um, appreciate the fact that um, companies like IRA have um, a support program to help people do a home-based test. Also, um, Be My Eyes um, partner um, Accessible Pharmacy Services for the Blind is also quite involved in providing support for people who need assistance to, to take a home-based test. Um, and all of those are great, but what would really be best of all is if we had an accessible test option for us out of all the tests that are on the market. Um, so I think Allison might have mentioned that if you haven't, you know, put in a request for your COVID tests, you can go to the website covidtests.gov. It's quite accessible and you can put in a request or you can call the number, the dial number that Swatha mentioned, 1-800-232-0233, and put in a request over the phone to get your four free um, COVID home-based tests. It's good to have them on hand. You know, 
will 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 uh, work on the accessibility, but you know health health comes first. So I would urge people to put in the request and have them on hand because you just don't know when you might need to to use one. And that's what's really most important is that people connect with that service to stay safe and healthy. So, but um, thank you to to the, the staff who uh, who person the uh, the dial line to accept phone calls and fill those orders. And as Clark mentioned, the second round of four free home-based tests has just been launched. And you can, um, if you received four tests previously or you haven't at all, you can contact those entities. So the... Um, I, I want to turn to um, to get a little bit more background on the whole concept of accessibility of home-based tests. Um, how how can it be done? Because the um, the National Institute for Health Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering Division is the department of, or the institute of the National Institutes of Health. There are like 27 institutes under NIH. And the biomedical imaging and bioengineering section has been charged with researching and learning and developing an accessible home-based test. So they are doing research, they are um, doing a listening session that our um, president, Dan Spoon, has been invited to participate in on our behalf to gather information. And one of those gathering of informations for all of us, I think, is learning about how could a home-based test be made accessible. And that's why I decided to bring in people who have been involved in this process from RNIB, um, our, our colleagues there who have worked on the um, an accessible pregnancy test. Now, it's not a COVID test, it's a pregnancy test, but the principles are very similar. How did you make it accessible? What kinds of things did you need to consider and how is it made available to the community of people who are blind and visually impaired? So I want to turn to, to uh, Martin Wingfield and Michael Wordingham from RNIB to talk to us about how this process kind of evolved and what they did at RNIB. I don't know which of you wants to go first. I'm sure there's sort of an order to how you present. So I'll turn it over to you and you can you can share with us what you have today. Thank you. Sure. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll kick us off and, and give you the background to why we, we developed a, an accessible pregnancy test. Um, and it's worth, it's worth noting for those of you who don't know that the technology behind a pregnancy test is exactly the same as a, as a COVID test. So it's the, the, the technical term is a lateral flow test. Um, and how it works is the, uh, the absorbent strip fires off um, certain motors from a, from a chemical reaction from urine or saliva that then gives you the result if you're pregnant or if you have COVID. So two, two very different outcomes, but one, one kind of connected piece of technology. And um, 
the, the, the reason behind the pregnancy test was, was, was really about privacy. So working with our, with our creative agency, we, we were talking a lot to them about, about the challenges of, of, of private information when you have sight loss or you're you know, blind or have low vision. And there's all kinds of examples of, of, of private information, which I'll come back to. But knowing if you're pregnant or not is, is pretty up there. And, uh, you know, we, we've had examples where, um, where, where, where we did the research that, that people were asking their next door neighbours who they didn't know particularly well if they, if they were pregnant, which is um, not, not good at all. And COVID tests are similar in the way that you might not want anyone else knowing your results and then there's a hunt you know there's millions of other examples about, about private information from finances to um you know your your you know your marital situation kind of million and one different health things that you just you just you know should shouldn't be in the public domain so what what we did thinking about pregnancy tests was you know was, was start to do some pretty in-depth research about how how the existing pregnancy tests that you can buy in your in your local pharmacy would work and, and and how we could make them accessible we work with a with a superb um designer who um and, and we work very closely with a lot of a lot of blind and partially sighted colleagues and did our own research into into making sure that a lateral flow test was possible and crucially we we were very very conscious that whatever solution we came up with couldn't be couldn't be expensive. We couldn't exclude financially anyone. So the you know we we, we needed to make sure that whatever technical solution was was then able to go into manufacture and it not cost you know fifty dollars or a hundred dollars. You know it had it had to be twenty dollars absolutely max, if not if not less. Um, so. We, you know, we managed to do that. And, and by the way, for anyone that's interesting, interested, there is a there is an open source document that that, that talks about how the the, the, the the lateral flow test is made. And then and then we went on to publicise that via a, via a film, via a, an advertising campaign that really talked to to the privacy uh, around privacy and, and information. So, and we we did have some very early conversations with with some major manufacturers. About pregnancy tests, um, and we and and some of those conversations are still are still um, are still slowly but surely happening. But then COVID arrived, and 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 we and we have then you know, spoken to, to to manufacturers and 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 lobbied the UK government to be much more accessible around all things COVID. And from, from picking up some of the conversations earlier, it, it, it sounds like there's been some some similar activity. Um, in the in, in the US and, and and other parts of the world. Um, so maybe Mike, if you could pick up the conversation about how we work with the with the UK government with particular um, particular respect to the to the COVID tests. Yeah, absolutely. So in uh, April of uh, 2020, uh, I approached uh, the Department of Health and Social Care. The uh, the department responsible to raise our concerns around the inaccessibility of all kinds of testing. So at that point, uh, most uh, testing was done at out-of-town test centres, which people had to drive to. And few of us as blind and partially sighted people uh, can drive around uh, 
safely. And so we weren't even able to, we would only be able to get there with being driven by someone in our household. So we, we weren't allowed to get taxis or anything. And so uh, I raised this and there, there were more test centres created, which, which were in city and town centres that we could walk to. But we soon realised that making the home test uh, channel uh, as accessible as possible was going to be really important. So we set up a, um, a, a pilot and a trial where we had uh, 50 uh, blind and partially sighted people were observed uh, self-administering one of the PCR tests. So this wasn't an LFD test where you had to read the result, but uh, a PCR test which you had to send off to the lab. And uh, when it was being observed, it was found that actually in a lot of ways, taking the actual test itself was not the the, the really most difficult part. Surprisingly, uh, people with uh, a little bit of support over uh, video um, or just working out the test could could take the test and uh, and do it successfully and and send off. All the challenges were around the logistics around it, about uh, the packaging, creating a, a secure box to send off with, and then uh, uh, registering the uh, the test once uh, to send it off. So they were, people were being asked to look at barcodes, uh, read barcodes, and um, uh, find. And they also needed an, an email address to, uh, originally to, to even uh, order or register the kit. So we had put in place, uh, and also, as uh, uh, Clark uh, mentioned earlier on, the instructions themselves were not in an accessible format. So what we did, we worked with the government, and uh, RNIB developed uh, accessible format uh, test instructions. So uh, we made sure they were available in Braille, large print, giant print, digital, and audio. People could order them through RNIB. And they were also available in audio on our RNAB helpline. And also they were rewritten to be sort of haptic instructions, which relied less on saying things like look in the mirror and find your tonsils. We also then uh, put the Department in, uh, um, of Health and Social Care in, in touch with Be My Eyes. And um, we run a, a second pilot uh, to see how Be My Eyes could be used to support people to take the test. And that was then uh, rolled out at the beginning of 2021. So by this point, we had various improvements to the home channel uh, test in terms of the packaging, in terms of, so we got boxes which are easier to put together. We had alternative format instructions and we had the Be My Eye support. Um, and there was a small pilot also of in-person support at, at GPs. But then, and the same as is happening to you at this point, so by this point, it was much more accessible to far more blind and partially sighted people. And the, and the product itself uh, was uh, with support. People with uh, function, more functional vision or no sight at all were able to take the test. But when, it, when, when things moved to the lateral flow device tests, there were different uh, challenges. As you know, the two bits which were extremely difficult were the putting the drops onto the cassette uh, where we found in our third trial that, that this was really difficult for people to do um, and also obviously the reading the result so be my eyes was put in place again to support people who were dig digitally uh, included 
to get support there. And then we asked uh, um, for more in-person support through testing uh, asymptomatic testing sites and at pharmacies where the uh, results, where the tests were being sent out. Um, but uh, we, we were finding that the, 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 the still the, the, the stage where putting the liquid onto the cassette was, uh, was a, a point where, for many of us as blind and partial sight people, there was just no, as a design, the product wasn't working for us. But there were, uh, and we, we put in various other recommendations for how the product could be improved for uh, a large number of people to make sure that in terms of colour contrast, in terms of the uh, registering the kit with a lot, making sure there was bold, a high contrast um, uh, lettering uh, on the cassette and um, various other ways to make the whole process as straight uh, as accessible as it, as it possibly could be, as well as being supportive. We also looked into a trial for um, uh, another type of uh, lateral flow test. And uh, in the first pilot, the saliva tests were shown to be more accessible to blind or partially sighted people than uh, the, the swab tests. And so uh, as part of the pilot, uh, we, we evidence that it was, it was more accessible and suggested that that might be a solution for uh, making a more accessible kit. But uh, so then uh, a second um, it's, uh, evaluation was carried out by uh, the Department of Health and Social Care on a particular pen device called the Assure Tech Eco Test COVID nineteen antigen nasal test kit uh, pen. So it's a kind of pen uh, which was far easier to use, and it used swab, uh, you know, saliva element, and uh, that was easier to for everyone to use, and, and crucially missed out this step with a drop. But unfortunately, it didn't pass. Uh, the clinical evaluation because the the tip was not um, um, I can't think of the word uh, sterilized so that it didn't have a sterilized tip and it so it wasn't accurate enough so but further work has been put into uh, hopefully making the saliva tests uh, pass the clinical test and, and that solved some of the problems it doesn't use the technology that Martin was just talking about but it is uh, for uh, more uh, accessible to many of us as blind and partially sighted people. Um, and so more work is done to that. And we've also been working with uh, other companies to work uh, with a, a test which uh, works in conjunction with an app, which would be able to read the test uh, and um, register at the same time. So you wouldn't have to be able to read the test. Uh, and that's where we are at the moment, essentially, with uh, the, the tests for the government. We have, we have put these improvements in place for the LFTs and, and the P PCRs, and they're still looking into uh, evaluating uh, these saliva tests of various types, which are more accessible uh, to blind or partially sighted people. And we've put in recommendations to improve uh, the products of these LFD tests uh, in terms of just the design of the packaging and the size of uh, the fonts and uh, maybe having some kind of add-on to make putting the the drops in 
with some, you know, by by feel. But um, we did speak to the uh, department uh, early on about using the, the technology Martin was talking about. But at that time, this was in uh, the end of 2020, uh, even though work had been done, as Martin says, to, to bring the cost down for the pregnancy test technology, uh, it was uh, the way it worked. It was uh, more far, maybe more expensive to to. It was too expensive to create at that kind of the kind of scale that was needed at that time. But the more work has been done to uh, to bring the cost of the pregnancy test uh, technology down, and uh, or create another way so you wouldn't have to have that the the, the tactile mechanism uh, every single time. You could reuse it, you reuse it for different tests. But I will pass back over to Martin to maybe talk about the details of how the tactile mechanism works. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. So in, in three or four minutes, Michael, Martin, okay. for you to wrap up and then we'll move on to Marsha. Sure. So I, the, I could ask you a million questions, but I'm sure our National Institute of Health will be in touch as well. But thank you. Yes. Right. So the, 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 the lateral flow test for the pregnancy test worked by... Um, uh, by by firing some 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 motors, so it's it's battery operated, and the and and the chemicals, if if the result is positive, fire a small motor that push up some bumps, so it's tactile, and we chose tactile over audio or for privacy reasons because a lot of the tests might be taken in a in a in a bathroom that's, that's shared, for example. Um, but the just to just to go back to the overall strategy and, and how the pregnancy test, the, or the you know the natural flow test, helps from a COVID point of view is is we have proven beyond any doubt that it is not it it's not difficult at all and it's not costly to create an accessible home test for many things. So we've removed that barrier from the from the large manufacturers from government governments from from people that want to create any any health test um it can be done in an accessible fashion and that and that's what we successfully proved well thank you for your research i think it's going to be incredibly important and i hope you'll share that open source document with me so Absolutely. that ecb can um, can continue to advocate with the national institutes of health and as I said, I'm sure if they haven't already, they will reach out to have some conversations with you as you know consultants on this because you've really blazed the trail here for um, for making tests accessible. And um, and I commend RNIB for that. That's really um, groundbreaking in in my opinion. So thank you to both of you for your roles in that. Thank you. Yeah. I'd like to. Um, to introduce Marcia Yale, who is the president of AEBC, the Alliance of Equality for Blind Canadians. And Marcia, welcome to ACB. Thank and you. we'd like to hear a little bit about um, AEBC's journey on this issue and what how your advocacy has moved forward. Well, we we thank a ACB for writing such a great letter because we uh, we borrowed a few things from it. Um, our health system is sort of fractured in Canada because part of it is at the federal level, but 99% of it is at each provincial level. So it's not, 
know, each province governs its own healthcare, but the main procurement happens at the federal level. So devices, medical devices and tests and such are, you know, for something like this, where it's a national pandemic or, you know, any kind of national issue that happens at Health Canada. So we wrote the health minister, the federal health minister, and um, the gentleman who is the director of the medical devices area of Health Canada, who we had been introduced to for another advocacy reason. <laughs> and it just, it just happened that it was great because we knew exactly who to write to this time. And um, he basically, his, his view was, well, it's not part of the Health Canada, the Canada Health Act that we talk about accessibility, but since you brought it to our attention, we will start, you know, asking pro manufacturers could they do something accessible but you know we we don't <laughs> we don't necessarily have to do it but we're going to start trying and uh, we didn't think that was good enough <laughs> so we uh, decided to come at it another way and that was to go to procurement canada which is in charge of all government procurement so any Anything that the federal government wants to buy has to go through Procurement Canada. And we took the issue to them and said, look, you're probably going to be asked to purchase hundreds of thousands of these things from manufacturers. So why not push back and say, no, they have to be accessible. And we got more interest, I think, from Procurement Canada, but so far nothing has happened. And I, I too, would love to show that document from the RNIB to uh, Health Canada and to the manufacturers that are out there because, my goodness, that just that just sounds amazing. <laughs> um, personally, I. I long for the day when we can just go into a pharmacy and buy a test for whatever we have to buy a test for. If there's a home test for everyone, there's a home test for everyone. And I don't want to have to use Be My Eyes or Ira, though they are great tools to have. And I usually forget that they're out there. <laughs> I'm still not used to having them. Uh, <laughs> most of my life spent not having them, but it's not... You know, that's not the ideal. The ideal is to be able to do your own test. And um, it's interesting because there are different ways of testing things. Uh, I had to take a genetic test earlier, uh, later last year, and there were two choices. You could either do a blood test at a lab or you could do a spit test. Wow. What's the choice for you? I, I hate needles. So, so I'm thinking that why couldn't they do a spit test for COVID, which would be a heck of a lot easier than lining up, uh, you know, a swab or something to stick up your nose and a lot less uncomfortable. And then you just have to solve the issue of how do you, how do you provide us with an accessible way of knowing your results. Um, and that, 
is still up in the air from the sounds of it. Uh, sounds like we still don't have that possibility. But um, oh, I, yeah. will, <laughs> I will certainly make sure that um, when I that get document. that document from, from uh, Martin, that I, I will share it with you, Marcia, as well. Um, it's, it's great that RNIB has done so much. And I love your idea of the procurement angle. I think that's a really smart approach. And I think you're, you're so on target with um, the idea that this is, this is just the beginning. And I think we're all aware of that, that there are going to be more and more types of home-based tests and for colorectal cancer, for kidney function, for so many other things, genetic testing, that um, we want to make sure that, that this work helps us immediately with COVID, but I think it's going to be so applicable for the future of healthcare testing and how it's done by blind and visually impaired people. So I know I could talk about this for a long time, but we don't have any more time today. But thank you to my panelists. And I also want to encourage if um, those listening have questions, send them to questions at acb.org and or call the phone number, which is escaping me right now, but maybe Clark or Swatha can repeat that since they've done it for the last few days um, to, to post a question through Janet, and we will take those questions as part of our fact-finding and work on um, your thoughts and your ideas and getting back to you if you have specific questions. So again, thank you to, uh, to Martin and Michael from England. Appreciate you staying late at work or however you managed to do it to be part of this with us today. And thank you, Marcia, for joining us from Canada. It was good perspective to hear about your interest as well on this subject that touches everyone all over the globe. So thank you, Clark. I'll turn it back to you for wrap up. Thank you, Kim. And thank you to your panelists. I, I think what's clear right now is that we all have more questions than we have answers. And whether you're submitting those via email to questions at acb.org, or you are calling or texting Janet Dickelman at 651 651- Four two eight five zero five nine. We will do our best to pass those along and find answers when available. Uh, and folks, uh, please know that advocacy work in this area is, is ongoing, and you know, we are we're we're trying our best here, and we are keeping all options on the table. So, again, thank you to Kim and your panel, and thank you to Allison Barkoff from uh, the administration on community living. We're gonna pop off for a quick break. Uh, please enjoy Cindy and Colby on the Connect Show. And we will be back with our next panel dealing with the legal advocacy landscape. Welcome back everyone to our second Connect Show of the day. I am Colby. We're so excited to be back with you again and I'm here with Cindy and I am excited to be here as well and we have two special people that uh, oversee two special fundraisers for ACB and I think we should jump right in and we're going to introduce David Trott first. 
David, I know you are here to plug the Braille Forum raffle, good cause, fun times. Tell us about it. I will, but I'd like to take a personal privilege if I might. Um, about less than two weeks ago, I was privileged and honored to be the speaker for the Hawaii Council of the Blind State Convention. And we hear every year them giving out to ACB in the uh, roll call. But what we don't know about is they do the same thing at home, folks. They, they really give of their money, their time, and their effort. They're a great group of people and a great organization. If your chapter ever needs to learn, contact Art and his group out there. They're just a great group of people. They are. And you know what? Right after the last time we had a D.C. leadership conference in person and just before COVID, the last thing I got to do was be the national representative at the Hawaii Association of the Blind Convention in person. So, yeah, it was pretty great. And they are a wonderful group of people. And certainly if anybody needs to connect with them, you can always drop an email to community at acb.org and we'll get you hooked up. All right, David, tell us now about the Braille Forum Raffle. Let's talk about the Braille Forum. Yeah. I, told, I told y'all Sunday that we've given back over $130,000 to our uh, members, affiliates, and chapters uh, that have bought tickets and won. That is a great, great thing that you're That's doing. That's amazing. Uh, raised over $300,000 for ACB uh, in the Braille Forum. There's just so many ways to get the Braille Forum. You know, when, when I... Uh, first started getting the Braille form, they brought it, you know, just about by horse and buggy. And you, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you got it on Braille, cassette, or large print. That's the only way you could get it. And now we've got so many ways to get it. And it's in large part to the work you guys do every year with the Braille form raffle. Uh, you get the opportunity uh, or a chance to win the three prizes, which are $5,000 for the grand prize. $1,000 for second prize and $500 for third prize. And we, we've had uh, a lot of different winners over the years. It's helped a lot of affiliates, treasurers, uh, and it's helped a lot of people's pockets. So we're real excited to be bringing it back to you this year. Uh, thanks to you during the COVID times when we really needed the money. Uh, you've made it a sellout. We've raised $25,000 a year for the last two years. Uh, it's it's just a great opportunity. And now I'm going to tell you the ways you can buy them. You can call the, the 800 number or the Minnesota office, and they will hook you up with a ticket. Uh, if you wait and you want to save a little bit now, the tickets are $50 each. So if you want to save until registration opens up, uh, registration will open for members on May 12th, for everybody on May 19th. Uh, and I had a question asked me just yesterday. David, can I buy more than one ticket? Of course you can. You can buy as many yeah, tickets absolutely. as you uh, And also, you can go in with friends. Sandy was talking a while ago when we were offline. We were talking about the uh, number of tickets she went on last year with some friends of hers. To, yeah. You know, it helps, helps everybody participate. And you split the prizes. And it's, uh, it's a good way for everybody to have the opportunity to participate. But know that... Uh, we want you to participate if you can't afford it. There's, there's no judgment there. Uh, but, but we do, uh, for those who can, the tickets are $50 each, or you can go with up to four of your friends, which would bring the price down, of course, to $10 each. And uh, 
We just want you to take uh, take part in it and have a good time doing it. You know, it's it's always exciting at the banquet, especially when we can be in person uh, for oh, Nancy no and I to be there. And when we pull that ticket, see the the looks on people's faces that that the winners and the excitement there. Uh, also, I want to give a shout out to my buddy Alan Peterson who has sold more tickets than anybody ever. And Alan, your goal this year is one fifty. <laughs> he, is that your goal for him or his goal for him oh uh, well it's he has now i gave it to him <laughs> <laughs> that's great yeah and he often sells the winning ticket darn it so um maybe i need to buy a mine from him <laughs> i actually david i was i was i named a few tickets i was on last year i went in halves with three different people i did my own that's four tickets and then I also did a community ticket with four other people where they all went in $10 each. So I was on five tickets last year. I did not win, but uh, I was hopeful. <laughs> oh, and, and by the way, while I'm thinking about it, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, talk about Carla and Patty and the folks at the Mini Mall. They're, they're always good to help us every year. Yes. So if you miss a chance or if you didn't catch up with your buddies to get a ticket, go by the Mini Mall and pick them up. Uh, just any way, you know, there's so many ways. We, uh, If you can't remember a way, get in touch with me, get in touch with Cindy at Communities. Yep, and absolutely. And I will just say this. If you are one that wants to share in a ticket with, I will even help you guys coordinate. If you want to email communityacb.org. Um, it, it's just a, a great way to support uh, the Braille Forum as well as uh, be able to participate in a different way in the banquet and, you know, get to, when that drawing's taking place, you know, have a, a stake in the game, right? Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. So. I had goosebumps it, it last year <laughs> there when you that go. drawing was taking place because I, I went in on a yes, ticket. You never know, right? Yeah. You never know. But, you know, with, with ACB uh, and its treasure, I get to see all of it. Uh, our members really show the love with all of our fundraisers, the wall, yep. MMS, uh, everything. So we, we love you and we appreciate what you do. All right. And just remember, just do what you feel good about. And all right. We're going to jump over here. Thank you, David. We're going to jump over mm -hmm. to Gene Mann and hear about the MMS really quick in a, about a two to three minute spot there, Gene. Okay, well, we're in the home stretch, guys. Yep. Um, yesterday's winner, by the way, was Tim Hill. He's uh, uh, from West Virginia, and he just signed up um, this weekend. So, you know, you, you can sign up if you haven't, and you still got a good chance of winning the $100 Amazon gift card, which we will draw probably tomorrow morning because I'm going to give you till midnight to sign up. And um, I live on California time, so... You know, you can you can get in touch with me late tonight. <laughs> the numbers, yes, the numbers. Uh, you can call eight 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 nine 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 three one nine zero, or you can email ask a s k a c b m m s at gmail dot com. And either way, I will get back to you and. Uh, I'll sign you up or answer any questions or whatever you, whatever you want to do. So tell us what MMS stands for and why should people give? It stands for the Monthly Monetary Support Program. And it's a really easy way to help ACB 
and your local, I mean, your, uh, your, your affiliate, your state affiliate or your special interest group, because half of what you donate can go to that uh, affiliate of your choice. It's a, it's a very easy way to do a little bit of fundraising for, for your affiliate and also to fundraise and help ACB with all of ACB's projects. So it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, you don't even think about it. You have to donate a minimum of $10 a month. Um, and if you, if you sign, if you um, want to increase your donation, we ask that you do it in $5 increments. So it's just a very, very simple way to help ACB and your affiliate. Um, and, and you don't really think about it. It comes out of your uh, checking account or gets charged to your credit card each month, whichever you choose. And, you know, there's that saying, if you don't, what you don't see, you don't miss. Um, you, you won't miss that five or $10 or, well, it's gotta be $10 or 15 or 20 or however much you can afford to give. And if you, if for some reason you can't, you know, you need to cut back a little bit, you can do that. If you need to take a, a, a pause, like Cindy said, she's had to do occasionally, you do that and then you come back when you can come back. Absolutely. And it's an opportunity for you to give maybe more than you could at one time you're giving it over a 12 month stretch. So it increases your ability to give to the organization that we know you hold dear to your heart. And uh, we appreciate that. Thank you, Jean. Thank you, David. And uh, we are going to step out of here, Colby, and we'll be back in about one hour. Enjoy the breakouts and listen in. Uh, Oh, it's not breakouts yet, is it? No, not yet. Enjoy the next session. We'll be back at 3.15. A-C-B, below each letter, dots, representing the letter in Braille. American Council of the Blind, together for a bright future. ACB Executive Director Eric Bridges, with Advisory Board Member Matt Handley. Eric Bridges, Executive Director. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Bridges, Executive Director of the American Council of the Blind, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Matt Handley, a member of ACB's Advisory Board. Hi, Matt. Hi, Eric. How are you? I'm, I'm great. And thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us so that our members and the blind community can get to know a little bit about you and the work that you do. And frankly, the, the work that you assist ACB in uh, year in and year out. Great. My pleasure to be here. Yeah. So why don't we first start by uh, you telling folks a little bit about what you do during your workday. What's your role? Matt Handley, partner, Handley, Farah, and Anderson, PLLC. So I am, I am a, a lawyer, and um, I focus my practice on representing uh, victims of, of wrongdoing, of, uh, whether that be discrimination or other, um, other bad practices that, uh, where, where people have been harmed. Um, and a big part of that is, is we have a very large disability rights practice at my firm, which is an eight-person firm um, based here in D.C. Um, and I've had the privilege over the last almost decade to make a big part of my practice focused on representing the needs of ACB and its members. Yeah, and we're very appreciative for that. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, why don't you brag on your firm a little bit? What's, what's the name and how long have you all been around? So our firm's name is Handley, Farron and Anderson, and we are uh, an eight-lawyer um, firm. Um, it was started uh, in 2018, 
Um, prior to that, I was the legal director at the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. And that is where I had the, the pleasure of first um, being able to, to represent and um, affiliate with the American Council of the Blind. As uh, Eric knows, I think it's been almost 10 years now since we first uh, formed that relationship, I believe back in 2013. And over the last uh, nearly 10 years, we have um, you know, made enormous uh, leaps and um, advancing the the rights of uh, the blind community, particularly when it comes to uh, their right to access to um, accessible technologies. Absolutely. So given all of that, what, what brought you to the ACB advisory board? Well, as, as I said, it's been, you know, a real privilege over the last uh, uh, close to 10 years to have the ability to represent in a legal capacity ACB and um, when I was invited to sort of expand that role and provide um, even more um, advisory services on how ACB uh, manages its operations and manages its mission statement um, and effectuates that mission, um, I really jumped at it. I mean, it's been uh, really one of the highlights of my career to be able to um, advance the interests of ACB and its members. And now with this added um, honor of being able to uh, associate with the, the goals and the, um, and the, the, the goals and the aspirations that ACB has uh, and to make sure that they're being um, done in a, in, in both a um, effective, and um, in a consistent way has just been um, has been a real honor. Oh, it's it's been wonderful working with you. And uh, as part of that, why don't we get into it a little bit regarding the, the issues that you, as an advisory board member, are are working with uh, the staff and leadership on uh, these days. You came on in 2019, um, and you know, a lot of the, a lot of the work that you do is, is, is legal advocacy in nature, but if you could uh, share with folks, maybe the two or three things that you're actively working on or engaged with us on uh, at the moment. So, you know, I, one of the, the nice things of being on the advisory board is the fact that I continue to be able to serve in my role as a legal advocate um, on behalf of ACB. And so that certainly has not Diminished. In fact, if, if anything, um, the numbers of, of projects that we have in that area have really increased. We continue to um, push for uh, accessibility in a variety of our everyday uh, experiences with companies around the, the country who um, develop technologies. And so things such as, as kiosks that are um, inaccessible, websites that are inaccessible, other devices that are inaccessible, trying to ensure that um, the companies embrace both their responsibilities under the law, but also um, their good business practices to try to make things accessible and inclusive for everyone. Um, in addition to that, though, specifically now that I'm on the advisory, uh, on the advisory board, it has you know, been my privilege to be able to 
help ACB sort of look at some of its um, controls and uh, uh, and standard operating procedures and offer advice on how they might be either um, improved or uh, made to be more uh, useful to, to their staff. Um, you know, for example, uh, since ACB does not have a full-time general counsel, it's been um, a, a real privilege for me to be able to step in when, I, when I'm able to offer advice on things ranging from, um, from contracts to, uh, to, to document storage policies to, um, uh, to you know, assisting with legal needs that may pop up with um, events and other um, engagements that ACB has with both the public and the private sector. Yes, <laughs> we we talk regularly about any and all of those things, and and I do very much uh, on behalf of ACB and and the, the staff and the leadership really appreciate your willingness to take on um, at times some additional um, initiatives to to help us add uh, process and structure to the work that we do because it's it's needed uh, during this time when we're continuing to to evolve the organization. And uh, Matt, thank you so much for what you do uh, for ACB. And it's, uh, it's a pleasure working with you. Thank you, Eric. And, and uh, the pleasure is all mine. All right. Take care. A logo, ACB in print and braille, American Council of the Blind, together for a bright future. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, and thank you so much to ACB Executive Director Eric Bridges for that conversation with one of our next panelists, Swatha, uh, Matthew Handley, the partner at Handley, Farah, and Anderson, PLLC. Um, Swatha, who are our other panelists for, for this conversation? So in next to Matt, we've got... Um, Christina Brandt-Young from Disciplinary Advocates and Maggie Hart from the Washington Lawyers Committee for Urban Affairs here in DC. And this is our conversation on the legal advocacy landscape. So we are very excited to have uh, three partners and partners who ACB collaborates with on an ongoing basis when it comes to fighting and defending the, the civil rights and disability rights of people who are blind and low vision. Um, so Swatha, take it away. Let's go. Um, hi, how are you guys? Can you just tell, us, tell us about your work um, at your firms? And because we just heard from uh, a spotlight on Matt Handley, uh, Maggie Hart, would you like to kick us off with sharing about the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs? Hi, sure. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me here this afternoon. Um, so as uh, Swatha said, I am Maggie Hart. I'm from the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs in Washington, D.C. Um, the mission of the committee is to address uh, systemic barriers uh, and uh, centered around um, racism. And as we all know, racism and ableism are, um, are intertwined. And so my work focuses on that intersection. I handle cases um, 
under Title II and Title III of the ADA, mainly systemic litigation um, in various, I guess, what we call practice areas at the committee. So I handle cases um, around voting access um, related to the interaction and over-policing of people with disabilities um, related to prisons and related to public accommodations and education. Um, and you know, I've had the privilege of working with ACB and um, I'm hoping that uh, we have a great conversation here today. And hi everybody, my name is Christina Brandt Young. I work at an organization called Disability Rights Advocates. We have offices in New York and in California, and we bring class and impact suits nationwide against governments and businesses on behalf of people with all kinds of disabilities. Uh, many of those cases lately have been on behalf of the ACB and its local affiliates, and we're really excited to talk with all of you about those today. Great. Thank you, Maggie, and thanks, Christina. Matt Handley, anything you'd like to add? to add about uh, you or your firm in addition to what we just heard in the video? Thanks, I don't, I, I don't think uh, I need to make necessarily another introduction just to express how, how happy I am to get to be here with, with you and, and, and Swatha and, and Maggie and Christina um, for this you know, very important discussion. All right, uh, so each of you touched on the, the work that you're doing uh, in conjunction with or on behalf of ACB, our uh, affiliates and members. Um, but I guess let's, let's dive a little bit deeper into the, the specifics of some of that ongoing work. Um, Christina, would you like to kick us off? Uh, thanks. It's, it's really a pleasure to get to talk about the work that Disability Rights Advocates is doing together with ACB and its affiliates. And I, I just want to note um, that many attorneys at our organization have worked on this stuff. Many really important activists within the ACB have worked on this, uh, and a lot of people who have performed really courageous and strategic and successful advocacy are not going to get named by me here, for which I apologize. Um, but we have about five categories of work that we're doing together right now. Um, one is around accessible pedestrian signals. Uh, together with the ACB of New York, uh, we won a remedy recently that the city of New York uh, has to install accessible pedestrian signals at 10,000 intersections over the next 10 years and equip all of its signalized intersections with accessible pedestrian signals in the next 15 years, um, which we're very excited. And then together with, with the ACB of Metropolitan Chicago, we just certified a class of blind pedestrians in Chicago that will attempt to do the same thing. Uh, together, we're doing a lot of work on voting uh, with the state affiliates in North Carolina and Indiana and, again, New York. Um, in North Carolina, uh, that suit is complete and uh, voters with print disabilities in North Carolina can use full online return to cast their absentee ballots in North Carolina, which is great. Um, the New York case is still ongoing, but as a result of the preliminary injunctions we've done so far, uh, voters in New York State are currently voting on uh, accessible PDF ballots, and voters in New York City are voting on print and mail democracy live. Uh, in Indiana, that case is very much <laughs> still ongoing. Uh, but uh, on Hollywood, would have been, I think, Thursday of Wednesday or Thursday of last week, uh, we struck down the state's mandatory uh, traveling board. Uh, which was a group of voting officials that would come to your home and fill out uh, your absentee ballot if you were not physically able to complete it yourself. Um, 
So that was the most restrictive absentee voting regime in the country. And we're very happy that at least for the May 2022 election in Indiana, it's gone. We've also done a bunch of audio description work uh, together against HBO Max and Hulu uh, with the American Council of the Blind National, uh, the Bay State Council of the Blind, um, working on getting audio description for all of uh, those organizations' content going forward, um, which is really, really exciting. Um, And then let's see, we also have New York Alerts. which is a mass notification system that's website-based uh, intended to in, inform people about emergencies like hurricanes, floods, fires, winter storms, that kind of thing. That website and all of its associated communications will be uh, accessible within six months. Um, and then finally, uh, there's our work on fitness. Uh, together with the uh, Paralyzed Veterans of America, the National Council on Independent Living, and the ACB National Um, Among other things, all new cardio machines at Planet Fitness will have inclusive features, including raised tactile buttons and the ability to receive audible instructions and performance feedback. So uh, we're working together, uh, I have to say quite successfully, I'm really proud of the advocacy we're doing together in a lot of areas. Um, It's it's a real joy and pleasure uh, to work on behalf of all of you. And Christina, this question. Um, could you sort of explain the class action status granted in Chicago where people don't know what it means? Oh, thank you, uh, Swatha. That's a really good question. Um, and what that means is that uh, the ACB of Metropolitan Chicago and three individuals who are all ACB members uh, have been appointed as the representatives to engage in the class, uh, engage in the court case on behalf of every person who is or might be a a blind pedestrian in Chicago who would benefit from having uh, signal information from pedestrian signals. So it means that they're working not only on behalf of themselves, but on behalf of anybody just like them to make sure that the court is aware of the things it needs to know in order to make good decisions uh, in this case. And, you know, we still have to establish Uh, that the defendants are in fact liable, that they violated the law, that there's something that they have to do. Um, But having a class ruling means that the court recognizes that there could be liability there and that someone has to, um, you know, to to work to represent all blind and and deafblind people who may need those signals in the future. Thank you for that. Clark, back to you. Great. Great question, Swatha. Thank you. Uh, Maggie Hart, uh, what what kind of things are the is the lawyers committee currently working on? And I guess more specifically, what has the lawyers committee been working on in conjunction with ACB, our members and affiliates? Yes, thank you, Clark. Um, I think you know, thinking back on the work we've done over the last couple of years, our first uh, partnership had to do with accessible absentee voting. Um, and like Christina, I'd like to acknowledge, you know, that uh, I'm not a I'm not a sole practitioner. I work as a part of a big team um, of advocates on the ground, other community organizations on the ground, as well as co-counsel on my cases. Um, and so we we've done some voting work in two states. Uh, we started out in West Virginia, um, working with ACB affiliate there, as well as the Centers for Independent Living. Um, and we partnered with uh, the Protection Advocacy Organization in West Virginia, as well as a firm. Uh, and we um, anticipated that we might need to file some litigation there to um, have fully accessible absentee voting. But we were able to 
work as a coalition um, and uh, get the attention of the Department of State there and um, and uh, actually worked with them to advocate. And eventually there was a um, bill introduced in the legislature that permitted accessible absentee voting. Um, after that, we um, looked at Virginia and um, worked with partners on the ground there, including the local ACB affiliate, um, and did, ha did have to litigate that, but we were able to reach an agreement there as well. Um, in addition to the voting rights work, uh, we have worked together around uh, accessible um, durable medical equipment, specifically the glucose monitors. Um, although, and while we continue to work on that, we're also thinking of you know, other, other durable medical equipment um, that is inaccessible and that we could kind of make a larger change there, hopefully through some advocacy. Uh, and we have worked together uh, to looking at accessible government websites in DC and making sure the district has fully accessible websites. Um, and more recently, we've been looking at, I think there's been some discussion at this conference um, about the inaccessibility of uh, COVID tests and COVID testing and whether there's the potential for advocacy or, or litigation um, around that issue. And it's been a pleasure to work with ACB and I hope uh, we continue. Thanks, Maggie. And, and working with the Lawyers Committee and the, the Mountain State Council of the Blind, uh, and, the, and all the parties involved in West Virginia, um, A, that feels like so long ago, it was before the pandemic, but B, it, it really got the ball rolling in a sense of making remote and absentee voting more accessible for people with disabilities. Uh, so great to have you as a, a partner in that effort. And, and Matt Handley, will you please share some of the specific items that you and your firm are working on uh, with ACB and our members? Sure. Um, so much of 2021 uh, was filled with litigating kiosk accessibility issues, in particular touchscreen kiosk accessibility issues, which as I think everyone here knows, continue to you know, pervade more and more aspects of our daily life, um, whether that be um, whether that be at uh, medical facilities, restaurants, and elsewhere. And in particular, ACB is a plaintiff in two large class actions pending in California, one against Quest Diagnostics and one against LabCorp, which are uh, the, the two largest um, uh, phlebotomy labs in the country with thousands of locations located across the country, which now require anyone who's checking in at them uh, to use their inaccessible touchscreen technology. And so those cases are now fully through, uh, are, are awaiting trial at this point. Um, we have a trial date in the Quest Diagnostics case with a certified nationwide class in November. Originally, the trial was going to be in January, and we were all gearing up for that. Uh, but it's now been postponed till the beginning of November. Um, and LabCorp, we're just waiting to, to get a date for that. Um, importantly, the court in Quest has already, uh, has already held that um, the services that are available on the kiosk are services subject to the requirements of the ADA. And so long as they're not being effectively communicated through other means, must be accessible on the kiosk. 
the issue that it's really going to come down to, and I think this is what's going to happen in many other kiosk cases too, is are the services that are being communicated through the kiosk, are they, are they being effectively communicated through any other means? And increasingly, you know, the business models of companies who are using kiosks is they want those kiosks to be the only way that they're communicated. And if that's what it's going to be, then I think, you know, we're going to succeed in making sure that, that those communications are accessible through accessible kiosk technology. Um, in addition to litigation, we do a lot of structured negotiation work with um, ACB. Um, it's certainly ACB's desire, if at all possible, to avoid litigation and to work cooperatively with, with, uh, with companies to ensure access. And that has taken on a, a wide range of, of industries. Um, it, some of the effects you may have seen that you, wouldn't, you don't necessarily know that they were the results of some of ACB's advocacy. The, the newsletter that ACB sends out periodically is now uh, through constant contact. Is, is is more accessible through the through the advocacy efforts of ACB um, in a structured negotiation. Um, though many people may be familiar with the platform Discord that is used in chatting and gaming, that too is is now um, on its way to full accessibility due to um, structured negotiations that ACB has done. Um, Patreon, uh, which is a platform where creators and authors can uh, post their uh, post their work and get paid um, for it and make connections. That is now uh, more accessible as a result of ACB's structured negotiation work um, and educational curriculum around the country. Um, in particular, most recently, on behalf of the Kentucky uh, Junior College System, um, is uh, is now um, where it had been inaccessible to blind students. Um, this year should now have an accessible curriculum all due to the result of ACB and its affiliates work on that. Great. Thank you, Matt. Uh, folks, we will be taking audience questions during this session. So if you have questions, please email them to questions at acb.org or call or text Janet at five, six. Five one four two eight five zero five nine. And Swatha, if you don't mind, I'd like to kick off with a, with one question since Christina and Maggie both talked about voting rights and voting accessibility work that they've been doing with ACB and several of our affiliates. Um, and this is a question dealing with a, you know, accessible remote voting. So it's uh, to start over. Roughly 32 states allow some voters, in most cases, uniform military and overseas voters, to uh, receive, receive, mark, and verify, and then return their ballots electronically, whether that's through fax, email, or using an electronic portal. Uh, but only nine states offer this type of voting to voters with disabilities. Uh, should, should we, should ACB and our members expect that any time a uh, you know, electronic voting for absentee or remote voting is offered to some class of voters, that that system be made available to voters with disabilities as well? 
so hi, this is Christina. Um, I have some opinions about this. <laughs> um, one opinion is uh, the defendants in the ADA realm frequently think of equality as providing the exact same service in the exact same way. And so uh, no one should expect anything unless they're ready to advocate for it, that's for sure. Uh, but if you are living in a state where someone else is uh, marking and submitting a ballot entirely through an HTML-based system, uh, then you have a better chance than someone in a different state uh, of advocating for and receiving that exact same thing. Um, if you live in a state where uh, what we call UOCAVA voters, and those are the voters under the uh, Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act voters, um, if they are receiving their ballots by email and returning their ballots by email, um, there's a pretty good chance that they have to print those out, mark them by hand, sign them, scan them back in, email them back in. And uh, there may well be a voting official who's willing to give you exactly that process. And that process is inaccessible. Um, and so it all sort of shakes out from there. Um, so for Clark's, Clark's question was, you know, should you expect that you're going to get the same thing? And uh, I think the answer there is not without advocating for it, um, is answer number one. Um, but also reminding courts that the, the ADA says that sometimes in order to avoid discrimination, you have to provide reasonable modifications to the systems that, that states are already using. Um, that reminder uh, is where the devil sort of gets into the details, I think. Um, so, you know, if you live in a state that already has electronic return, especially an electronic return uh, system that you like, uh, by all means, contact Clark and Clark might reach out to somebody. <laughs> I would love to hear from you. Um, I will also note for whatever it's worth that courts really love advocacy ahead of the lawsuit in this arena. Um, looking around the nation, uh, being able to say that blind advocates have reached out to their state board of elections or their state secretary of state, that you've had meetings, that you've written letters, that you've given them opportunities to understand and solve the problem, uh, gives judges a lot of comfort when judges want to order something for you. Uh, and so it's never, there's, it's never wrong to do that advocacy. It's never wrong to call your legislators um, and do that advocacy. And legislative solutions have had a lot of success, uh, frankly, uh, nationwide. Uh, it, the, the legislative solutions are, are you know, you're, not everybody's getting them, but a surprising number of states are. Um, I'll also note that courts were willing to move really fast in this arena back when the pandemic was peaking. Uh, I think that it's, you know, they, they are feeling less pressure to do that now, but the right to vote absentee remains. Uh, something we're seeing, I think, in the nationwide uh, rulings are also that sometimes states will argue that as long as they provide uh, voters with disabilities with some way, somehow to provide a vote, uh, that's good enough. And the courts really aren't having it, um, which is a, a nice, nice trend to see. Uh, so the upshot is, you know, contact your legislators, contact your state board of elections or secretary of state, you know, fight for what you deserve, which is a private and independent absentee ballot. Um, and if, if the time comes when uh, the lawsuit is the way to go, then, you know, maybe, maybe that time will come. 
Um, I know Maggie has a, a lot of opinions about this as well, um, and I'm eager to hear those. I'm, I'm also eager to hear uh, about uh, other types of restrictions on voting uh, that we're seeing sort of uh, in a wave across the country, uh, even as the absentee realm is opening up a little bit, uh, other things are closing, uh, which is a source of real concern for us. Yes. Hi, everybody. This is Maggie. Thank you, Christina. I would you know, say Christina is 100% correct. You, know, you should look at your state's voting program and what do those UOCAVA voters have available to them? And is it something that's accessible or at least electronic? Um, that would give you a better opportunity um, to advocate. But I, I also agree um, we shouldn't expect anything without advocacy. I think especially at this point where there has been so much advocacy and litigation on the issue, um, I think local election officials are aware of the issue generally. And so um, I, this is just completely my opinion, uh, but if they haven't moved <laughs> Uh, already, they're probably going to need a little bit of a push. Um, and so there's definitely a need for continued advocacy around um, the electronic absentee voting. Um, and I also you know, echo what Christina said, definitely do some pre-litigation -litig advocacy, um, build that coalition of print-disabled voters, um, and work with the, you know, uh, Center for Independent Living or the local disability rights advocates um, and and know who you're advocating for, who the government officials are, what what have they generally done when it comes to ADA um, access to voting and and who who are the legislators that may be your allies and, and may be willing to talk about this or introduce something, uh, introduce a bill. I think it's really important to know that going in. Um, and so we're absolutely continuing to work on the absentee uh, voting access. And I think the pandemic highlighted the issue. And, uh, but it, it, is, it is an issue and a right, uh, whether there's pandemic or not. So I think continued advocacy um, is needed. That said, there are bills being introduced across the country to restrict access to voting that have you know, nothing to do with absentee voting. There's voter ID requirements. There's restrictions on um, how many ballot boxes people can have. There's um, all sorts of processes to change your address or to, you know, you have to reapply to vote absentee every year. All sorts of challenges that are being put in place um, that just make access to the ballot more difficult. Um, and, and some of those will make it more difficult for uh, members of ACB. And so I would encourage folks to look at all of those bills. And um, there may be, unfortunately, a lot of work that needs to be done in the voting rights space. Great. Thank you both for that uh, conversation. Swatha, do you have a question? Um, no, let's turn it over to Janet. Janet's questions. Janet does have questions. Yes. All right. Um, we have a lot of people who are very interested in Planet Fitness because Meryl wants to know about when the machines might all be accessible. And Joseph wants to know that if you if the machines are accessible at Planet Fitness, he had gone there in the past and was told he needed to have a personal trainer to assist him if that would change with the accessibility of the machines. So Christina and Matt, since uh, you are both 
working with ACB on this initiative. Do you have any initial, additional information or thoughts? Um, Christine, do you mind if I give, say what I know of this, about, about this piece? Um, so um, it's a very good question. And the um, part of the... Um, Part of the agreement is that new equipment will get rolled out as it's replaced. Um, and some of the new accessible equipment hasn't even been developed yet. The manufacturers were you know, waiting for demand from large customers. Large customers are companies like Planet Fitness, um, like some of the other entities that ACB is in the coalition are now um, in, also in talks with uh, hotel chains, other fitness providers. Um, and so it is, Planet Fitness is certainly the, the first, um, you know, the, 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 the first company to come forward to say, you know, we're going to do this. Um, but the timing is still a little bit up in the air while they're waiting for some of these, from some of these pieces of equipment to actually be fully developed. Um, so I, I unfortunately don't have a, a, a hard, uh, time when that is scheduled to be I, all i can say is is that um you know the coalition along with planet fitness are now working feverishly to try to make sure that the manufacturers are going to actually produce equipment that will then get installed and as soon as it becomes available it would then get replaced into pen, into planet fitness's inventory Thanks, Matt. And yes, this is this is an ongoing area of advocacy. Um, we were very pleased with the joint announcement with Planet Fitness last September, uh, but we know that there there's going to be a you know a a timed rollout or phase in here as that equipment is manufactured, purchased, and installed. Uh, but it's a, a great indication that industry recognizes the needs of you know, our members and our population uh, to be able to get up and get moving and have access to this equipment just like everyone else. And do we know anything as far as requiring a personal trainer? So no, does any, yeah, yeah go ahead, Matt. I know, and, and I, I, I do not believe that any of the agreements are, are conditioned on making the accessibility of it, uh, of the equipment and the inclusivity of the equipment dependent on the fact that you have a personal trainer. If, if your question is, is that what's going to be required in order to make use of the equipment? No, it's, it, these are supposed to be things, this is supposed to be equipment that's independently accessible. And, it, and thanks for that, Janet. And I think that goes to a broader question that uh, people are often told when uh, accessing it, the goods or services of a business or place of public accommodation. Um, you know, you can't use this, this fitness facility unless you have sighted assistance, or you can't go to this, uh, say, amusement park ride unless somebody's there to assist you. Um, is there any requirements that people who are blind or low vision uh, must have sighted assistance to access the goods and services of of places of public accommodation? No, I mean, I think that's the, I mean, the, 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 the key and, and the, uh, the 
goal of this work is to is to make things independently accessible not not require the use of of others not that's not to say that you can't require that you can't have the use of others but that should that should be an option not a requirement and similar to the work we're doing in the accessible or the currently the inaccessible kiosk space right exactly and you know and i think that that there too a lot of um what i think you're going to see companies what they're what they're going to come forward with kiosks are a good example of this they will say that they have staffing that is there to provide whatever communication the kiosk is actually is is there to provide and so therefore um you know that they don't have to make the kiosk accessible so long as they have staff that are there to provide the same information and i think the the problem with that argument is just that's not how it works in practice the whole idea of the of of putting in um technologies like kiosks is to reduce staff not to not to maintain staff levels and if staff levels are just going to be, be maintained at the same level then then there wasn't really a, a use of adding the kiosk and so i think it's going to be incumbent on all of us to to make sure that the courts and the public and the our legislators know that um you know technologies can make life easier but they need to be they need to make life easier for all of us not just some of us thanks matt and i have a question i'd like to start with with maggie but certainly get everyone on the panel's thoughts so maggie uh, different court jurisdictions in different parts of the country have ruled differently on how the Americans with Disabilities Act applies to goods and services uh, on websites or on the on the internet. So what would you say is important for folks to keep in mind if they're contemplating legal advo- advocacy regarding uh, you know goods or services available on websites or on the internet? Sure. So uh, you know right specifically um, there's this circuit split around whether uh, websites are fall within the definition of place of public accommodation under Title III of the ADA. Um, and I think, well, if, you know, the, the whole world has moved online, right? And that's why this is critically important. Everything, every day, um, we have to use the internet um, to order dinner, to apply for a job, to apply for an apartment. Um, and so what... If you're facing barriers in that area, I mean, the first thing to do is to find out what is the law where you live. Um, is has the courts decided it is covered under Title III or not? Um, I think that that because of the circuit split, there is a strategy question left for litigators um, in particular places that say it is not uh, does not fall under the Title III of the ADA, which is how do we enforce our clients' rights and ensure civil rights are upheld and everybody has access um, without necessarily bringing the claim in a a place where it will not be popular, um, in a place where they will say it it does not fall under public accommodations and the internet is not covered. Um, And so I think certainly, you know, I would 
I would do a lot of research before I started to <laughs> um, advocate around the issue. And I would talk to people who've worked on the cases before because um, we don't want it getting to the Supreme Court where they decide that it does, does not fall within the definition. If, if, I, if I could also just add sure. one thing, what Maggie was saying too, I mean, I think, you know, one option that I think all of us are looking more closely at these days is, is to stay away from the federal courts because, because of that, that exact issue that Maggie raised. The, um, you know, some, there are some state courts and state laws that, you know, appear to be more favorable, but that treat um, digital businesses as um, businesses that are subject to disability rights laws. Um, California's, I think it certainly seems like it's headed that way. Um, and most recently, to sort of give sort of a pitch to Maggie's in my sort of home jurisdiction, D.C. has now amended its D.C. Human Rights Act to make it clearer that um, places of public accommodation um, under the D.C. Human Rights Act you know, include places that are not just brick and mortar locations and has yet to be tested out fully. And I think but I think we all want to kind of we're all sort of chomping at the bit to try to see if we can make. Um, you know, DC, uh, a place where digital businesses um, are accessible businesses. Matt, I, I think you just uh, identified our next case together. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then one more question for me before we take another audience question. And I'll, I'll start with Christina. Uh, so in talking about you know, the, these cases online and Maggie mentioning potential uh, appeals to the Supreme Court. There have recently been two um, cases that almost made it to the Supreme Court um, regarding uh, disparate impact, um, whether that was CVS v. Doe or the, the, the CVS pharmacy chain or the Los Angeles County uh, Community College District. And in a case as well, um, Christina, will you share with us a little bit what is disparate impact, and if uh, if that provision was removed from disability rights um, you know, laws and regulations, what that would mean? Uh, thanks, Clark. Uh, disparate impact is the theory by which. Uh, Sometimes, uh, as we were discussing before, uh, you treat two people exactly the same, but they're not similarly situated to each other. Uh, and the result is that it's an unfair discriminatory result for one of them, even if it's not for the other. And in American law, what is so important about the disparate impact theory is that it means that someone's behavior has to change regardless of their intent. Uh, you don't have to have what I call hate in your heart uh, intent to discriminate against someone in order to be held liable under a disparate impact theory. Uh, and it's a very, very important theory uh, of liability under the ADA for uh, people with disabilities, because when Congress passed the ADA, they recognized that a lot of discrimination against people with disabilities was not coming out of a place of, you know, necessarily, again, hate in your heart, uh, but rather from a place of condescension um, or protectiveness. Um, 
or other things that can limit people's lives and opportunities uh, just as much, uh, but without, again, uh, you know, the hate in your heart intent requirement. So these two cases are, are kind of terrifying, honestly, uh, in that uh, CVS and the Los Angeles Community College District were both seeking to uh, get rid of the disparate impact theory for people with disabilities and say that only discrimination that starts from an intentional place of hate counts. Um, and so far, uh, both of these cases have uh, sort of gone away uh, through community pressure, uh, which is great. Um, it's, it's great on a whole host of reasons. It means we don't have to go to the Supreme Court and hear what they think about this right now. Uh, it also demonstrates the power of the disability community when we get together to organize. Uh, you know, both of those things are very, very good for us. Uh, but, you know... Any, any attempt to limit the dis disparate impact theory uh, in the realm of disability is uh, potentially extremely damaging. Uh, we should be paying very close attention to it. Um, to be honest, uh, this is a legal development that is bleeding over from other, other types of civil rights claims. Uh, they're not just going after it, after disparate impact for people with disabilities. They're going after disparate impact uh, where it has a, a, a differential effect on the basis of race. They're going after it on the basis of gender. Uh, we're, we're not the only ones, but uh, it's a, an alarming development and uh, one that we have to pay a lot of attention to. Thank you. Uh, Janet, can we get another audience question? Yes. Um, okay, this is from Steve, and I will say this is from an attorney. So with respect to the Quest and LabCorp's cases, couldn't a HIPAA claim also prove useful if a kiosk requiring the entity of the entry of personal health information um, is inaccessible? Shouldn't the entity utilizing the kiosk be requiring um, um, required be, be required pending accessibility to delegate an appropriately authorized person to assist the user so also with web portals right and and so i think to the extent that um uh to the extent that you're providing HIPAA covered information i think there probably are HIPAA violations there however i mean our understanding um I mean, and our lawsuit's not a HIPAA-focused lawsuit, but I don't know that the, that a straightforward private right of action under HIPAA um, exists. I mean, and a lot of what we are challenging, particularly with Quest and LabCorp, is um, you know it's certainly true that what patients are being required to currently do is ask other patients to. Um, to uh, help them to check in. Um, it's not always or often the case that the information that the other patients are having to um, help with, although it's private information, isn't always medically related. I mean, it's often names and phone numbers and sometimes birth dates and, and helping them to scan driver's licenses and the like, um, which is problematic enough. Um, but, you know, I, I don't believe, and although I'd welcome particularly if others have other thoughts. I don't believe that HIPAA has a straightforward private right of action under it that one would, would add, could add into the lawsuit. That, that's not to say that there couldn't be government enforcement of that. Okay. 
um, would you like me to do another one? Yes, Clark? please, Jenny. All right. All right. This is from Chris. And Chris wants to know what have been the benefits and the limitations of Section 1557 accessibility litigation under the Section 504 um, incorporation into 1557. And I hope one of you understands that question because. <laughs> so Section 1557 of the, of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, uh, which is the, the anti-discrimination provision of the ACAA. Um, I guess a, an initial question, has uh, anti-discrimination towards uh, people who are disabled been been challenged in the courts using Section 1557 of the ACA? Um, I, I, I'm going to answer my limited experience with it. And I think it, I think what's because it's so new, I think it's still sort of confusing courts a little bit in addition to maybe lawyers too. But I think it does. I, I think that the courts aren't used to trying to parse through its relationship to 504 and the like. We, we recently in, in the quest litigation itself, we actually are the, the court, um, uh, did not um let our ACA claim go forward, which was largely premised on set on the idea that um that uh uh Quest had not given primary consideration to the um to the requests of the blind community, in particular ACB, um, as to what needed to happen with Quest's services in order to make them accessible. And uh, my reading of the court's decision, which I'd be happy to share with whoever wants to, to see it, is that the the court was the court didn't understand why that was a a, a cause of action. They were more interested in the, the court was more interested in looking at this through a strict ADA Title Three or Five Hundred Four lens and wasn't really putting the ACA overlay on it. And so, I I would like to still try to to try to use the statute, but I I. Would be interested if other practitioners on if if my colleagues here have other thoughts on it. I just haven't found the right circumstances to use it yet. Uh, this is Christine. Christine, yes. I will say, DRA uh, is in a similar place. You know, we've we've considered it for certain causes of action before. Uh, we haven't gotten there yet. We haven't found the right claim to bring with it. Uh, someday, sooner or later, it'll happen. And this is Maggie with the Washington Lawyers Committee. Uh, we are also in a similar place. We haven't filed a, a claim with it in it. I think there was some discussion, of course, in CBS v. Doe um, of 1557 and, and Section 504. Um, and there were several uh, amicus briefs filed in that that could make for interesting reading on the issue, I'm sure. Thank you. Janet, can we get one more question? Yes. Um, the last question that I have is about a specific voting machine and wanting to know about accessibility on the Dominion Systems voting machine. Is anyone familiar with that? Uh, this is Maggie. Uh, I've certainly heard of Dominion voting systems um, as far as, um, you know, it, it, 
in person. I, I presume we're talking about a voting machine. We're talking about you know voting at, at the machine in here. I'm assuming so. The person wasn't specific, and I didn't have a chance to reach out to him because I just got this question. That's okay. <laughs> um, but you know. Uh, Best practices, uh, all voting machines in a polling location should be accessible. There should not be one accessible voting machine in the corner um, that people with disabilities have to go and use. Um, all of the voting machines should be accessible. And I, I know that Dominion has some accessibility features. Uh, Clark probably actually know <laughs> for sure, but um, and, I would just and say that it, there should be more than one in a polling place. And that's certainly a, a question that we can follow up with, Janet. Send that um, to you. Yep. And then as we reach the end of the panel here, just a, a couple uh, questions for me as we wrap up. Another provision that's been cited recently uh, when dealing with the uh, accessibility of government websites or of em employers um, comes from Title V of the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, dealing with the uh, interfering with somebody's rights to access the, the goods or services. Um, would either of you like to elaborate on why the, the interference provisions of Title V are, are useful when advocating for access? Yeah, I, I would, um, I, that is an area that I, we are, even if we, it hasn't made its way yet for us, at least into a court complaint, it certainly made its way into our um, discussions with uh, companies as to why they need to make themselves accessible. I mean, I think an example would be um, the you know companies that provide payroll services to employers that may not be accessible. Um, the employers certainly have an obligation, I, I believe, under Title One of the ADA, to, or I mean, have a have an obligation under Title One to make you know the terms and conditions of their employment accessible. Um, and the payroll companies that are, um, you know, providing services to that company, pay stubs, 401k, um, issues and the like, if those aren't accessible, that company is interfering with someone's title one employment rights. And I think it, if one doesn't want to necessarily go straight after the employer, the companies that are interfering with those rights are, are, are viable targets to try to improve uh, improve the accessibility. I mean, that's just one example. I think that this comes up, if we really look at it closely, will come up in a lot of different areas. Thank you, Matt. And uh, again, thank you all for participating on the panel here today and certainly for your uh, collaboration over the past years and beyond with ACB, our affiliates and members, as we continue to, to advocate for our rights and the rights of other people who are blind and low vision. Um, as we wrap up here, I'd just like to get a get some final thoughts from each of you. And um, we'll start with Maggie and go down the line. Um, I guess, Maggie, in, in your sense, there's two questions. Uh, what is the state of the courts and legal advocacy on behalf of people uh, with disabilities and people who are blind? And uh, what recommendations do you have for folks who are considering legal advocacy? Uh, um, I think that's actually kind of a big, the first question is a big question. Um, you know, it really 
depends where you are and what circuit you're in, um, yeah. kind of the, the friendliness of the court. Um, I would say that overall, I'm optimistic. I'm not really sure why that is. Uh, just try to hold on to optimism. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think, you know, if you're preparing to advocate or contemplating, contemplating litigation, um, think, think all the way through it before you start and think of all of the tools that you can use that pre-litigation advocacy, who would your advocacy partners be, you know, consult with um, uh, an attorney and think through how the case would play out and, and what, you know, the true goal of, of the litigation or the advocacy is. Um, use the press if the press is appropriate. Just litigation is what we do and it's a tool and it's a great tool, um, but it's not the only tool. So make sure to um, think of a full plan and strategy before moving forward. Thank you, Maggie. And Christina? Uh, I would echo what Maggie says. Uh, first of all, all the different tools of advocacy work together in an ecosystem. Uh, and at any given moment, uh, your voice might be most helpfully raised uh, by talking to your legislator, by talking to your local businesses, by talking to the press, uh, or it could be um, in a litigation posture. And frequently, uh, you know it's time for litigation because you've tried everything else. You've written the letters, you've made the phone calls, you know, you've talked to everyone and, and you're just not getting where you need to be. And if you know you're right, uh, then the time has come to, or if you suspect you might be right. Um, some of the most rewarding phone calls I have <laughs> um, with my clients are when someone says to me, this can't be right, this can't be right. And I'm like, oh, that totally violates the law. You know, you're right to be outraged. You're right to be living. You're right to feel that you deserve to be treated better. And we should take this to a judge and find out, you know, I, I, I admit I'm not the hardest person to convince. <laughs> um, but all of these tools work together. And there are times when litigation is the right tool. And when it is, uh, you'll know. Thank you, Christina. And Matt. Yeah, I, you know, I think one of the unfortunate realities is, is that we occupy a space that has some, um, you know, players in it, particularly the, you know, some people who are members of the legal bar who are bringing lots and lots of cases that have resulted in courts becoming a bit jaded to mm. some of the, um, some of our efforts. It's hard for the courts to separate out uh, cases that have been brought for opportunistic reasons from those that are really trying to make the world a better place. And um, because of that, all the things that, that Maggie and Christina said are all the more important that we've got to, we have to be very careful to, to, you know, to, to show that we've made all sorts of efforts that are not just running out and filing a lawsuit if we really want courts to, to get it and to, to take our, our issues seriously. Oh, Matthew Hanley, Christina Brent Young, and Margaret Hart, thank you so much for joining us here at the ACB Legislative Seminar. Um, we certainly look forward to future partnerships and ongoing collaboration with all of you and your firms. Um, everyone listening, please uh, stay tuned. We'll have a Connect show coming up next, then our breakouts. 
And then we will close with our final general session and a political outlook for the rest of 2022 and the midterm elections. So thank you all again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be. Welcome back, everybody, to our third Connect Show of the afternoon. We're so excited to be here with you again. And I am Colby, and I'm here with Cindy. And we are excited to be part of this DC Leadership Conference and, of course, the second day of the legislative seminar. And while you are moseying on to your breakout session of choice, we have a couple of guests to talk about some special programs and uh, to get you energized and excited about activity and fundraising. So why don't we start off with the Get Up, Get Moving campaign. And Terry Suarez, you're going to talk to us about that a little bit. Woohoo, everybody. I'm so glad we're getting up and moving to our next breakouts. So let's do some clapping and some moving. I am so excited to talk to everybody about this magnificent campaign and the great people that are part of it. It's the fabulous six. We've got Tom Tobin, who's our chairman, who at the last minute said, hey, I need you to grab the ball and make a touchdown. So here I am. Woohoo! Touchdown. And we have the wonderful Leslie Spoon, who is my co-chair for the PR. We have Connie Sims and Amanda, who is on our advocacy group. And most important, Dan Dillon, who is part of our Heart Heroes and sponsorship of Get Up and Get Moving. So we're really excited. But you know what's so important, Cindy and Kobe? We can't do this without every single member and affiliate and special affiliate helping us out. You know that? Absolutely. And what everybody. Yes, we all unite together. So um, you guys have done it again. Did you guys realize what you guys have done? You've had every single one of us get up and get moving members on your shows. And we say thank you so much. But we can't do it without you guys. We can't do it without our members and our special affiliates. So if you want us to come and be a part of your uh, special affiliate, your state convention, whatever you want to do. If you want to do a dance, you want to have a special speaker, you want to do something back to give to your community, we can help you organize a blood drive. You may not be able to give blood, but showing your community that someone without vision was able to be part of organizing a blood drive. Woohoo! What a way to get up and get moving. And, you know, our health heroes, such as Walmart, some of us in different parts of the country. I'm blessed to live in Florida. Um, you guys can't get up and walk, but maybe you just need to get out. Go walk in Walmart and let them know. Thanks for being a health hero for get up and get moving. And they go, what's that? And you tell them it's where we get up and we get moving. And we want you to know we appreciate your support. So how do you guys feel about get up and get moving? I'm loving it because I started uh, riding my my bike, a stationary recumbent bike at home every day. Um, I started on June 30th. That's when I first got it hooked up and up and running. And I ride with a couple of friends every morning. So uh, I was doing it twice a day, but gosh, life is just too busy. So, um, but anyway, it's, it's been great. And I, 
I believe I've actually already made it to Omaha. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can just go back and forth. I I can go back and forth, yeah. Yeah, some of us along (laughs) the way. I have like 1,400 miles to, you know, to go to Omaha. But you know what's great is you can ride that bike on Friday on Leslie Spoon's Cardio Happy Hour. And it is so much fun because I have a stationary bike and it is fun, fun, fun. But um, I need to hear the two of you. When Tom was on the call the other day, I really didn't hear your woohoos. So we need to practice because, you know, Dan Spoon has his hip, hip, hooray. But for Get Up and Get Moving, we go woohoo. So let's hear it, Cindy and Kobe. <laughs> That's All right. great. We're going to be ready in Omaha because we're going to be doing a lot of woohoo in between here and there. All right. All right. Sounds good. And if if they want to get a hold of your committee um, out there, like any of our affiliates chapters, where should they send an email to? Okay. So we don't have a centralized email so that it can go to community. But where they can get the latest and greatest information, that's a different story. We have an ACB Facebook page for Get Up and Get Moving. We're doing hashtag ACB Get Moving. And we have a website that's on acb.org. And the beautiful thing is if you um, use the link to connect with us whenever we do an update to the website, um, you'll be able to get the information on your state and special affiliate website. So woohoo! All right. Thank you, Terry. Thank you so much. You're welcome to stick around or leave whichever you'd like. And we're well, going to. I get to go get ready for our panel. So. All right. Have oh, fun. Have fun. All right. Thank you, Terry. All right. Talking about getting up and get moving with a, with a bonus. Like this is like having the cake and icing on it. Right. Um, and maybe even some filling and <laughs> sprinkles. and <laughs> But um, the walk, the walk is, man, I think about the walk as it can, it builds team spirit. If you put a team together, uh, it certainly is individual growth. So, you know, you can set your own goals. Uh, you have an opportunity to share ACB with many of your friends and family and raise money for ACB and your affiliate. And who better to talk about it than Donna Brown. So Donna, talk to us all about the walk. <laughs> well, well, thank you. you. You really got us started here. Good. It's so fitting <laughs> to, to have the Get Up and Get Moving campaign yep. followed yes. by the walk. I because so the, the walk encompasses... Yeah, really three components. It's the get up and get moving part of it and walk. And, and especially if you're at an in-person convention, man, I don't know about anybody else, but I get so tired of sitting in that chair. <laughs> uh, so get up and get moving. Walking is, is, is a wonderful part of the convention. But like Cindy said, you know, that's kind of sort of the cake, you know, the, <laughs> it, and if, if you, if you do a lot of walking, you can, Probably afford to eat a little bit of cake too. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, part I of the like bonus. It. I yeah. like it. I like it. Anyway, so the icing is that 
the walk, um, and, and it's called the ACB Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk, for those who, who don't know, and named after the late Brenda Dillon. Um, it is a fundraiser for ACB, and it has been one of the largest fundraisers for ACB for the last several years. But the, I guess, sprinkles, candles, the, all the accessories on top of that cake is that it can be a fundraiser for your affiliate as well. Whether it's a state or special interest affiliate, you can use it as a fundraiser for your affiliate at the same time. So really, three for one. That's a pretty good deal. You don't get that too met too often anymore. So um, how that you works. You know, and the decorations on that cake, well, I think, are going to be like the camaraderie. I just think, oh my gosh, especially if you're in person, right? Like, isn't it great when everybody's getting pumped up to do it? And, and you know, so you talk about that one year, you were talking about the team spirit. Yeah. One year, and I don't remember what year it was, the North Dakota team, the Thundering Herd, I believe is what they call themselves, which I think is a (laughs) cool name. (laughs) Anyway, they, uh, Zelda Gephardt, created a, a cheer for their team. I remember. And, and, yeah. yeah. And so during the actual on-site walk, they, you know, uh, gave that cheer. And, and it really, I don't know about anybody else, but it revved me up as well. I wasn't part of their team, but but it energizes everybody. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, story after story of years of the walk, um, the year, this would be the 14th year of, of the walk. And over the years, we've brought in probably over, I don't know, $400,000, $500,000 for ACB when you put it all together. But wow. the affiliates, there's been affiliates who have raised as much as at one time $12,000. Can you imagine? That was not my affiliate. But uh, so what happens is you create a walk team and you can designate up to 50% of what your team raises to come back to your affiliate. So little old Mountain State Council, which we're a very small affiliate, but one year we got a check for a little bit over $2,000. That was a lot of money for us. Um, So stay tuned to the ACB lists. Uh, In another week or two, you will see an announcement that uh, has information about how you can sign up for the walk. It's only $25 to get signed up. That's not much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, that announcement will also have the all-important link to the ACB Walk webpage. It will have my contact information as chair of the walk. And uh, also stay tuned. There will be some community calls um, giving you tips and tricks of how your affiliate can raise money. And we are also going to create some videos of how best to use the website to sign up your team, to register as an individual. Even if you are not coming to Omaha, please join us. And our theme is walking everywhere. And so we are wanting you to join us in walking everywhere. Um, But I want to tell one little twist of the on-site this year, which I think is going to be cool. Um, If you're not an early riser, I mean, if you don't like to get up early in the morning, you can't use that as an excuse this year for not participating in the on-site walk because we're going to do it at six o'clock in the evening and we are going to end the walk filing into the first general session of the 2022 ACB National Conference and Convention. How cool is that? Wow. And you can sign up as an individual as well. Um, And I just... 
listeners, if you're a part of our community and you'd like to head up a team, let's get a community team together. I mean, what a great way for us to show our support of ACB and uh, the theme walking everywhere. Just amazing. So thank you so much, Donna. Thank you. All right. And we have a quick uh, 30 seconds. Can you... uh, Colby, why Let don't me you try tell to get us? through them this, this yep. quickly. Quickly. Break, breakout one, the intersection of accessibility, privacy, security, and safety. You can listen to that on ACB Media 6. Breakout two, get up and get moving. Why we matter, the importance of patient relations and advocacy on ACB Media 7. And breakout three is Teddy Joy's Law and Older Individuals on Blindness. And that's on ACB Media 8. Wow, Colby, you did great. I think you did it like 15 seconds, maybe. Um, But anyway, enjoy you guys six, seven and eight, respectively. And then come back and we will be here on six again, right after breakouts for our last connect show. Take care, everybody. See you soon.